Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. This is Robbie Martin. Hey, everybody. Happy holidays, everyone. Hope everyone had a good holiday with their family. Um, didn't get too bogged down in weird political nonsense uh, with their family members this holiday season. It's the first time Abby and I have recorded something in person in I don't know how long. I guess maybe the la- since, since the last time I was here. Yeah, maybe since the last holiday you came up and visited for, or the last time you were up here. I think so, my birthday, actually, I was here, and we did one. Yeah, yeah, probably. So this is a rare opportunity to actually hear Abby and I in person, even though everybody who listens to our podcast thinks that we do them all in person. Right. Which kind of blows my mind, because really it's good. like, it, to me, it's like so much different sounding when we do it together, mm-hmm. but... Anyways, well, I'm glad the illusion's working for you guys (laughs) and that it feels like we're together when we do these podcasts. But uh, yeah, I hope everybody's doing well. The new year's about to come in, 2020, and I'm actually sort of happy that we're not being inundated with best of the decade lists continuously. I'm kind of surprised, actually. I feel like everything right now would be like the best movies of the decade, the best music of the decade. And it's kind of just not as like, I saw more of that in like 2010, where it was yeah. like, we mark, we hit the first decade of the 2000s, like, let's go back and everything, talk about everything. And it's kind of like, I mean, if you really think of it, it's just arbitrary nonsense. It doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. Um, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, like started to get less definable and clear that those decades meant anything, mm-hmm. like when we were teenagers. So And now it just seems like it's a weird amalgamation of like fashion and culture that's just siphoning from all of those eras anyway. Exactly. It's just really strange. There really is no future. Things are just getting super myopic and dystopian and everything's just getting really convoluted and weird. But yeah, so yeah, the political climate's really strange as we're going into 2020. I guess I thought it would be more of a hyped up thing like 2020, you know, but I think that people are just so... um, I don't know if disillusioned is the right word, just like tired. I don't I, yeah. I know I am. I'm just like really, really tired of the regurgitation of just like the same shit over and over again. And and the seemingly less nuanced perspective and ability to have like in depth conversations with people. And I Twitter is probably like really, really exacerbating that because I know that that's not a reflection of real life at all. I no. mean look no further than the results of labor and Tory um, on Twitter and social media, it was like a, you really, really did buy into Corbin just having like a complete crushing victory, yeah. you know? And it was just like, this is going to be a total, like the youth vote is going to be on the streets. Mm-hmm. Like, look at this, it's going to be fucking unprecedented. And then it was just like the complete opposite. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people were really crushed by that. I could see why. Um, a lot of people in the UK, including Alan Moore, our, mm-hmm. our buddy, um, was said he's voting for the first time in the general UK election because this is how important it was. So it's kind of like everybody seemed to come out of the woodwork, even sort of the purists. You know, I don't, I hate using that word. I don't really believe in that concept. But people who you know normally don't vote in general elections were like, we have to. It was like a really intense climate of like, this is the time to like abandon all this. It was like the fruition of whatever Brexit was like the shocking vote of brexit this was the culmination of that where it was almost like how could you not expect as shocking as brexit was it was almost like they did the exact same thing that 
establishment liberals are doing here, which is like mm-hmm. just put forward a Joe Biden. And that's not what they did with Corbyn, but they put forward an, a second referendum on Brexit. Brexit was really divisive. Corbyn was diluted on it. He himself was actually pro whatever the results of the referendum were. He's anti-EU. He has a really good nuanced take on it, but mm-hmm. he just kind of deferred to the party which yeah. was a mistake. Um, but of course, they're all blaming the fact that he ran too far left. They're using it to try to demoralize Bernie Sanders supporters here. It's complete bullshit because it has nothing to do with him running too far left. You look at the center Lib Dems results and they were destroyed way more than labor. And so to me, that means that the policy had nothing to do with it. It was that London is seen as the center of power and everyone else is left in the dust. And... They did not respect the referendum on Brexit. And I don't know how much you can make a case for a left take on Brexit, but I do know that there's so many factors that play into it, like Ireland and Scotland being oppressed nations under the British crown, Mm -hmm. um, just the entire working class kind of disaffected, feeling the results of austerity, like very harsh results of austerity. And we know that that can manifest in really strange ways. So... There's a lot of bad things that happen and that will happen as a result of this because Boris Johnson is fucking nuts. But Robbie, he knows the Iliad. Did you see that? He knows how to recite Greek poetry. No, I did not see that. So it's okay. (laughs) He's like a rampant Islamophobe who's absolutely Mm -hmm. insane. And then, of course, the media just played their part to completely smear Corbyn in really an unprecedented fashion. I have never seen, and this was just from our viewpoint in America. Can you imagine what that shit was like in the UK? Smearing him as an anti-Semite. I saw articles literally saying he is the biggest threat to Jewish people worldwide. Wow. From like pro-Israel organizations. Wow. It was extreme. I mean, I even had to cancel somebody because they played into it that I'm a really big fan of. Um, Armando, uh, I think it was Luinacci... Uh, I, I don't know how to pronounce the name. In the Loop? Yeah, the guy who created In the Loop and the thick of it fell for the anti-Semitism thing. Like, towards the end, the, when it was getting closer to the election, I was like, damn. Like, I was surprised to see him falling for it. Yeah, and it's really unfortunate. And then also, of course, the the sort of Russia-gate-style smears against Corbyn where they were saying that these leaked documents that he brought out a couple of weeks before the election showing that Boris Johnson was ready to privatize the NHS to the highest bidder, uh, the media basically went on a smear campaign saying that these were Russian hacks or leaks. And I think it came from, I don't even remember what the source, I want to say Bellingcat, but I don't think that's where it actually came from. It was a suspicious sort of like vague accusation that was like, we have credible sources that this like appears to follow the same pattern mm-hmm. as like of course. Russian leak. It's like, what? And then it got even crazier because right before the election, these documents were actually being banned from places like Reddit. So Reddit actually had an official policy and they announced it saying that your account will be like locked or like it was like warning you, if you try to post these, we can take away your account. And if you post them, we're just going to go in and like remove the postings. Wait a minute. This was from Reddit? I thought you were referring to like corporate media. This is a dark ass path, dude. No, I know. It is really dark. And basically let that sink in for a second. If Reddit is willing to do that with this... Imagine what it would be like again if a WikiLeaks style like DNC dump came out here. I have a oh feeling that we've are the needle has already moved enough where it wouldn't just be Reddit saying you get banned. It'd be like Facebook, everywhere, like Twitter, every, all the social media sites would be like, if you post this, we will take away your account. 
Like it'll oh be my like, God. I mean, think about it. That's yeah. not that far off. And they already started to do that with Pizzagate. Obviously I don't subscribe to Pizzagate. I think it's a deployed right wing conspiracy op to help Donald Trump win. But Reddit did the same thing when Pete, when the Podesta emails dropped, the CEO of Reddit was like trolling Pizzagate posters by going into their own posts and like editing them. Like the, and he admitted to it. It's like, that's not, that's a, that's a really bad precedent. You know, that's so crazy. And it's yeah. already been sanctioned by the state with the whole arrest and prosecution of Julian Assange. I mean, the fact that journalists are now mm-hmm. conflated with the actual publishing. Yeah. Like the actual leaker, you know, <clears throat> yeah, in charge yeah. with espionage. I mean, that is a slippery slope that I think is setting a very dark precedent. And people are not acknowledging that enough because things like this are almost an effect of that where it's just become normalized now. It's like, well, Julian Assange committed espionage because he just simply reported and published leaks Mm -hmm. that is just standard i mean that's what the new york times did as well like you can you can point to any publication who did that yeah and prosecute them the same way so it's very scary yeah it is really scary and youtube i mean also all these social media companies you know they're changing they're inching forward their policies to make it harder for anyone to go against the status quo to post things um, and even YouTube recently said their new policy is any any videos that question any mass tragedy um, will be basically be pulled off. So that could go anywhere from saying, you know, like crazy people who say that Sandy Hook was a false flag to like people who just question things like the Syria chemical weapons attacks. Exactly. And that's exactly. very, very logical to question the Syria chemical weapons attacks. But they're trying to lump everything together. Um and, uh, you know, we've seen this for a year. It's, it's been going this direction for years, but... The collaboration with Jimmy Wales on Wikipedia now citing the citations from Wikipedia saying this is... You need to read this official posting, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, that, that's really disturbing, too. How did that link up? I don't know. I mean, even on my, some of my old videos, there are now links to, like, Encyclopedia Britannica entries, you know, in, like, my Anthrax documentary going to 9-11 for some reason like the Encyclopedia Britannica entry on 9-11 on YouTube. Really? Yeah. Encyclopedia Britannica, wow. That's and then really weird. The weird flip side of it is YouTube now will say when like U.S. state-funded outlets are state-funded. So like if you look at a VOA, a Voice of America or Radio Free Liberty video, it'll say that on YouTube. Mm. So And even like KQED, it'll say it's publicly, like partly government-funded or, mm-hmm. or PBS or whatever. It's things are getting worse. They're not getting better. Uh, all the people fighting against Silicon Valley censorship have siphoned all that energy into like a partisan dog shit show, where it's just all about being se- like conservatives being censored. And this whole crackdown on pro-Palestine activism and BDS, which is what we're seeing in, both in the UK and here, back to Corbyn, the charges of anti-Semitism are were so strange, Robbie, because it was being parroted nonstop, like. I've never seen anything like it and it was being weaponized in such a way that it was like just completely accepted by everyone. Like, yeah, labor has a crisis of anti-Semitism, but I never saw any evidence of it pointing to Corbyn ever. And I looked into this for like an entire day. I was like, what the fuck are these people actually talking about? And then it all came down to far reaching generalizations of like loose ties to like Hezbollah and Hamas, like a wreath lane ceremony for someone that can be considered like a Hamas terrorist or basically support for Palestine. So it was even really like what it was. more of a stretch than saying Ilan Omar is anti-Semitic. I mean, I, I think it's 
yeah, even though I don't think anything that Elon Omar has ever said yeah, I, be I remotely agree. construed yeah. as anti-Semitism but whatsoever. Like, Corbin's never made a statement that people have tried to say, like just a soundbite or a quote. I right, right. I mean, maybe they have, and I haven't right. paid attention, but I mean, I haven't no. seen it. No, you look at the media's coverage of of just the anti-Semitism thing compared to Islamophobia, which is basically like an industry there, just like it is here, and it was just totally truncated. Um, it was inflated to such a degree that it just dominated everything and cartoonishly painted him as just the biggest threat to Jews, as I mentioned. Meanwhile, Boris Johnson's first, one of his first policies, just like Donald Trump did here with the recent executive order, which we'll talk about, is um, criminalize BDS and pro-Palestine activism there in the UK. So essentially roll out some big giant criminalization of BDS, as well as ban strikes in like subway and rail stations and stuff like that. Like he, it's really great. It's going to be a really weird scene. Uh, we just did an interview with Loki, an amazing prolific artist, hip hop um, artist in the UK. Incredible dude who actually protested and did like a concert with MIA outside of Julian Assange's prison that he's being held in. But he just gave this really incredible breakdown of the whole UK election on the empire files that you guys should check out. It's really great. And he talks about how like intelligence, services there were directly involved like you know how mike pompeo even came out in a leaked recording and said that we're going to take steps to prevent corbin from becoming prime minister wow if he survives the gauntlet that's what mike pompeo said wow wow fascinating yeah so he's basically just threatening and insinuating that the u.s government is somehow meddling in the uk election Mm -hmm. to smear corbin Mm -hmm. i mean that's not surprising um but yeah, it's so weird how many people fell for that. I just saw Parrot it. And it's already starting. Yeah. We've already started to see it with Bernie, which is really, I mean, it's predictable, but it's also just really bizarre because nothing Bernie, I can't even think of anything, like Bernie's definitely not as far left as Corbin. Mm-hmm. So like the Hezbollah stuff you were mentioning earlier, like I don't even think Bernie would even touch that. Mm-hmm. Like he would be too afraid to. So what the hell is that even, like where is that even coming from? Like, oh, I, I even remember like uh, Jeffrey Goldberg, neocon, who's now the senior editor for The Atlantic, saying like three years ago or two years ago or something, you know, Bernie's the first Jewish president to run or like could be the first Jewish president. But why does he never mention that? Like insinuating he's like a self-hating <laughs> Jew. I mean, what does that tweet me even mean? Right. That's um, so good. And yeah, it's just it, it this should serve as a real warning to what could happen to Bernie Sanders if he continues to climb. Um, And I think we all need to be prepared for not just people saying that he's some kind of, he's spreading Kremlin talking points or Russian disinformation, but also literally that somehow his movement or him is anti-Semitic. And we we should expect that. I think you hit it on the head, the movement. And I've seen people, when they discuss this, when they say Bernie Sanders' movement has a problem with anti-Semitism, yes. they mean that people are pro-Palestine who are supporting him. Yeah. That's really what they mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It says a lot. Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much. And, you know, th- in the last debate, I was really disappointed. He did not go far enough at all. Like, considering how he's on record saying he would support the two-state solution from the 1967 borders, withdrawing mm-hmm. legal settlements, withholding aid, lifting the siege— a lot of radical things, right? Going much farther than just saying Netanyahu's a racist. 
he basically can't cower to these attacks. Mm-hmm. He's a Jew. That's unprecedented. Um, and, and if he cowers to these charges of anti-Semitism, it's going to do a lot of damage, I think. Especially if he feels like he needs to, if, and when you say cowers, the worst possible thing he could do is try to overcompensate for his support for Israel, which unfortunately I could see him doing that in a pinch if he's put up against the wall. So that's a, that's. Be, be ready for that. Not just his equivocation, but just the, I mean, we've got to be more concerned about the wave of accusations. I mean, and even Hillary, and as recently as this interview with Howard Stern, she was still blaming, Ber- like, like expressing like resentment and like basically hatred for Bernie, um, who did more campaigning for her than, I mean, not, not only that she didn't deserve it, but like unprecedented level of like campaigning for Hillary after she like dozens won the rallies. primary. Yeah. Dozens. And what did she do for Obama? She refused to drop out. Yeah. Refused until she went to that weird Bilderberg behind the scenes meetup. Yeah. Which the newspaper said that was just them going to Diane Feinstein's house and fake take and talking it out. Yeah. Yeah. That's normal for their entire press corps to be like yeah. hijacked on planes and saying what the hell is going on. But anyway, I mean, she refused to drop out. She only said that she was going to or no, she was justifying her not dropping out because she said Obama might get assassinated. Right. And that was like why she wanted to stay in the race that long. She like totally understood there was no path to victory. I don't remember her saying that. That's crazy. <laughs> she was acting like she was afraid Obama was going to be assassinated. She was just like, I need to be in the race in case something like happens, even though there was no way wow. that she would have gotten a path to victory at that point. Whereas Bernie did have a path to victory still. And when he finally dropped out, he immediately endorsed her and did all these campaign events for her, which of course he's still demonized for by an entire other sector of quote-unquote leftist oh, yeah, so people yeah, cosplaying people... as leftists because they don't understand that you know it's like a rock in a hard place like what the fuck was he supposed to do and to say like he cowered to the Demo- democratic establishment and capitulated to them sure to a certain extent but let's not forget that he also was an independent one of the only independents in congress for decades uh-huh. yeah you know i mean and he also this is something that people don't realize is all these candidates sign a pledge right I mean, even, you know, someone who people think is a total anti-establishment radical, which is weird that people think that, but Tulsi signed a pledge saying that she would support the Democratic nominee in 2020 also. She also said that she endorsed Hillary Clinton. Yeah, it's super, super interesting that people, all the, and all these criticisms we're bringing up about Bernie are true, but a lot of the same ones apply to her too, but it's like, you can't talk about those ones. Right. But we'll get into that a little later. We have some more things to say about her present vote and and generally what's going on in her campaign right now. But the debates are getting so watered down. The only person that was semi interesting, I mean, other than Bernie, who basically the best thing that I felt like Bernie said was that he was wrong on Afghanistan, which I thought was a a profound moment. Yes, of course, um, this should have happened 20 years ago. You know, Afghanistan is uh, its a complete joke that we went in in the first place. Barbara Lee was the sole vote of no. She went against the complete current. But it was amazing that Bernie Sanders took the time, I thought, to say um, she was right. She was right. I was wrong. And then you had Pete Buttigieg immediately step in and be like, of course we should have gone in and gotten bin Laden. Like, how could you possibly say that that was wrong? You know, it's really hard to still go against what's called the good and just war. Yeah, it's Uh easy to say now, Afghanistan, we need to get the hell out. But it's hard to say, yeah, in 2001, it was wrong. It was wrong to sign the AUMF and it was wrong to sign the go into Afghanistan and invade 
and occupy Afghanistan. What is his, has he said anything about the Patriot Act since then? That's a really good question. I mean, he clearly needs to be like feet to the fire on all of this shit, like yeah. 100%. That's a step in the right direction. I mean, to say back then he was wrong, everybody should be saying that. And that's really bizarre too, that Pete Buttigieg would act like he served, he knows damn well that the mission in Afghanistan was not to kill bin Laden. In fact, if you've studied your history at all in the Bush administration, the Bush oh administration... God, he voted against it. Oh, wow. Voted against the Patriot Act 2001 and against the Patriot Act reauthorization 2006. Well, that's good. But the, the thing about Afghanistan war is it was never explicitly about killing bin Laden. In fact, the original, the first three months window of the first U.S. you know bombers and, and troops sent to Afghanistan... We explicitly stated, when I say we, I mean the Bush administration explicitly stated that the that bin Laden was not being targeted yet. Right. That it was just the initial phases. So if you want to get conspiratorial about it, you could say that essentially they, they were giving bin Laden uh, some, what kind of head start. I don't know exactly what happened there, but they literally did give him a head start and he managed to, you know, escape to Pakistan or wherever the hell he actually ended up. It was a complete joke. And even the idea that Al-Qaeda is somehow needs to be defeated in Afghanistan is also a complete joke. There was really never any evidence that there was a serious, uh, like, Al-Qaeda stronghold in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea of training camps. I mean, if there was, like, training camps in Afghanistan for Al-Qaeda, we would have seen footage of those being, like, you know, taken over by U.S. troops, being like, look at all these fucking, you know, like tires on the ground and monkey bars, like all those videos you always see, <laughs> the same videos of like them jumping through tires. It's like, where was that even filmed? It probably wasn't even in Afghanistan, or like Yemen or something. I mean, who the hell knows? But yeah, the yeah. Afghanistan war is complete lie. It's it was a completely unnecessary war, and to top it off. Um, everyone wants to talk about how we funded the Mujahideen and they later turned into Al-Qaeda. But what about us propping up the Taliban? Like only like two years before 9-11. That's like barely talked about. That's a really crazy thing. And that we literally brought the Taliban to the United States as little emissaries for like the 76 Unical gas pipeline deal during the end of the Clinton administration. That's in Fahrenheit 9-11. So Pete Buttigieg is really suspicious. Um, he probably was doing some CIA shit. And he knows damn well that that was not the mission in Afghanistan. I mean, mm. even any soldier, I feel like if you talk candidly to any soldier, they either wouldn't be able to define what the actual mission is. They'd repeat some like weird talking point from above or they would not. They wouldn't. There's, I mean, are they even being told that? It's just so bizarre to think that he would come out with that. The Afghanistan papers are obviously a an important moment because it's putting the pressure and making Afghanistan part of the conversation as opposed to just being like in the background for the next decade or two, you know, (laughs) Um, that we're just perpetually at war and occupying Afghanistan. But I mean, the papers really just validate everything that we've always known that they just are continuing this for no reason. I mean, there's no good reason to have stayed all bullshit and there's no reason why we can't immediately just withdraw all the troops. The negotiation with the Taliban thing needs to happen immediately and we need to get the fuck out of there because it's absolutely insane. And under Trump, it's worth noting that fatalities, civilian fatalities are at an all-time high, which means the aerial assaults and bombardments on civilian areas have drastically increased under Trump. So the whole troop withdrawal thing, of, of course, is fake. 
Yeah, Pete Buttigieg is very suspicious. The woman who's like his press secretary is like the most cynical. She reminds me of the woman on Succession. <laughs> um, I forget her name too. But yeah, she's just like super cynical, like will blow wherever the wind takes her just to like get power. It's like a game for her. There's all these photos of her at like Donald Trump Jr.'s birthday party or some shit and she's like super good friends with the ambassador that trump appointed to germany or something who's like a super white nationalist guy and they always (laughs) send each other like hearts and stuff over twitter and and then she at the same time she's she's out with all these talking points being like yeah like pete Buttigieg differs from um bernie and and warren because he doesn't want to pay for rich people's like sons and daughters to go to college and it's like, why? Who are you talking that's to? You're like appealing funny, to like working class people. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. That's such a weird flipping of the paradigm to make it seem like. Yeah, wow. That's that's a fascinating sort of concern trolling. I think her name technique. is Liz Smith, but I could be wrong. She's the political press coordinator, and she's very, she's just like a hardcore operative. I mean, it's hilarious too because in reality, his campaign is not saying. You know, or there's no. It's not saying that people who make a cert, below a certain level of income get completely free college. You know, right? Like, so that's basically what she's claiming is a better position than just giving people free college. Yeah, I mean, it's a fake. It's just like a fake argument. And she also has tried to say, um, like, that it's elitist. Like, trying to think that everyone needs to go to college is just like a super elitist point of view. Because she's just like, that's not the way that working class people perceive the world anymore. It's like, dude, you're, but you're representing Pete Buttigieg, who is a very elitist. That's fascinating. Dude. It's almost like a disparaging thing to say that working class people like don't aspire to go to college or something. Yeah. Because I mean, that's so bizarre. Mm -hmm. It's so bizarre. Yeah. That's really manipulative actually. Um, I didn't, I'm not even aware of her, but Yeah. Yeah. I mean, good thing he's, um, I mean, is he continuing to climb or is he kind of leveling out right now in the polls? He's super leveled out nationwide, but in Iowa, um, he is at the top. Apparently, I do not believe any of these polls. I refuse to acknowledge or believe that Biden is somehow still at the top of all the polls in all of these states. It's really crazy. Yeah. I can't even process it. I mean, it's that that's a really hard pill for me to swallow. That he's doing as well as the polls are reflecting. I, I, I can't. It's it's shocking. I can't. Yeah. I really can't. Um, but yeah, Warren has really just completely dropped. Oh, good. Did you see that like, thing today really where her dropped. brother came out furious at her for saying that her dad was worked as a janitor? Oh my god. Yeah. So she's still she's basically a pathological liar. Oh Let's just put it straight up. She's basically trying to get all these like weird woke points, but. You know, a smarter politician, I feel like, could pull real things from their lives to do that with and exaggerate them. But instead of that, she's literally, like, just making shit up. Oh, my God. I mean, the Native American thing was bad enough. But it's like, I really do think she has, like, a problem. Like, a legit lying problem. she definitely does. It's like that same weird bug that's got into, like, Brian Williams' head and Hillary Mm -hmm. Clinton's head about, like, I was, like, escaping machine gun fire and helicopter. And, like, I went out to run out in the tarmac because we were getting shot at. It's like, do you believe that happened? Like, I almost feel like they do. Like, not that they're, like, when I say pathological, I mean, like, they're just, like, lying. Just, like, like, they're drinking water or something. It's, like, comes very naturally for them. Yeah, she also said... 
at some campaign event, she was like, my son did not go to private school. And they were like, but he did, though. And then that was another thing where people were like, why did Elizabeth Warren lie on camera about her that's children so attending weird. private school? Yeah, that's so weird. Super, super weird. I can't even understand it. I mean, it's a bad sign. The fact that she used to be a Republican for so long and she rebranded should be enough to give everyone pause about her, you know? And this wine cave thing that everyone was giving her props because of the the debate. She was yeah. like, billionaires and wine cave shouldn't be picking our next president. It's like, true, but you also did a wine cave fundraiser literally right before you ran for president. Yep. And it was you were charging $3,000 for photos of you and Melissa Etheridge or whatever who were there. So let's not pretend like you are. And, and mm-hmm. Pete Buttigieg actually had like a, a hot take where he was like, your net worth is a hundred times bigger than mine. You know? Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, that was an interesting moment. It re- kind of reminded me of that first debate when Kamala Harris went after Joe Biden for the yeah. I was that girl thing. It was like, wait, it, this seems like ca- like a calculated attack that was like pre-planned, you know? Oh, it was, because you saw the Instagram ads for the yeah. t-shirts and I mean, stuff. But I mean, this one too. Right. It's like Elizabeth Warren really never... What's weird about this election is I feel like any time any of these candidates directly attack another one, it's like very, very calculated Mm -hmm. in a way that I feel like previous elections, we saw more natural Mm -hmm. jabs and back and forth between the candidates. Now it's like this sort of weird faux unity, but like we got to calculate and plan out like when we attack another candidate. It's it's odd. I think in the post-Trump era, the, the dynamics have really shifted where it's like, all cards are on the table, but it me, but it like everyone's super arrogant and thinks that if Trump is president, that means that of course they naturally should be because they're smarter than Trump. And so they just, it's just been approached in such a bizarre fashion. I think that's why we see like people like Michael Bloomberg, you know, just some random billionaire who mm-hmm. has no widespread appeal, no mass movement and Tom Steyer a- again, like someone who has no base just jumping in the race because they're like, whatever, if Trump can do it, so can I with no grasp Mm -hmm. on like how Trump was able to win. I mean, he was a reality star. I think that's like the crux of that, but it's just really weird. And I think that shows with their approaches to the spectacle in general. Yeah. We can't, I mean, even though it does cost money to run for president, I mean, at a certain point, it's like all, all these people could be just angling for careers too, like outside of, you know, be holding office. It's, it's just press. like they get they they get all this free press, they get all these donations, and there's really not very much like serious auditing done. I mean, it's really really easy for any politician to get away with siphoning money from their own campaign. Just like it's easy to write off things from your taxes that you spend money on. You know, you can like write. It's it's a similar thing. Like, yeah, there's there are way you know people get caught doing it, but more often than not, they don't. So. It's like, where's all that money going for someone like Tom Steyer? I mean, he probably barely gets any donations, mm-hmm. but, you know, um, Pete Buttigieg, like, where's he, what's he going to do with all that money, you know? He's going to come out with a bunch of books. Yeah. Just like when we realized, I think it was like back when Ron, Ron Paul dropped out of the race back in, I think, 2012, we were like, oh, damn, he took all those donations and he's literally not going to run third party? Where's all that money going? Like, that's that's kind of fucked up, you know? Because people were so enthusiastic about his campaign that they were donating lots of money to him. Um, and you have to wonder what happened. You know, where does all that go? Well, it probably goes to the candidate. And they could you know, spend it however they want. 
you know? Yeah. There's no law saying you have to like give away the money if you don't use it in your campaign. Totally. So. Totally. Did you hear about that Bloomberg story that he used prison labor to make phone calls on behalf of his campaign? I did not hear that. Um, Very, I mean, that's... (laughs) Sounds like something he would do. It's I mean, like he, literally, it's like the most shocking thing ever. From The Intercept, it says uh, multi-billionaire Democratic presidential candidate Mike Bloomberg used prison labor to make campaign calls through a third-party vendor. The Bloomberg 2020 campaign contracted New Jersey-based call center company Procom, which runs call centers in New Jersey and Oklahoma. Two of the call centers in Oklahoma are operated out of state prisons. Wow incarcerated people were contracted to make calls on behalf of the Bloomberg campaign. This is unbelievable. Not to say that Bloomberg isn't a piece of shit, but it makes me wonder how much, how often that actually is done. Cause like call center jobs are shit, very generally very shitty. If you're actually like in a call center and I feel like a lot of those places are probably prison labor. It's unbelievable. Like, I mean, wouldn't you think that probably a lot that happens a lot more often than just in inside his campaign? Uh, yeah, like a well, call center is such a it's just such a brutal work environment. It really is. Like they time you. I mean, like volunteering oh doing campaigning phone calls is a whole different thing than like a call center, like a hired farmed out call center. It's horrifying. I yeah. mean, according to the Intercept, this has only been proven once before in an election. I think like in the sixties or seventies. Oh, in an election, this. yeah. But I can't. I can't even fathom how much this is used in uh, general. Yeah. In general. And just to give you a sense of how rich this motherfucker is, I don't even know how I'm sure he just got his money the same way Trump did super scammy, corrupt shit, real estate. God knows what he did when he was the mayor, but he is worth $54 billion. Very billion dollars and owns a ton of media. Yeah, well, he owns you Bloomberg, know? yeah. I yeah, mean, I mean... Yeah, his outlet, I mean, we, we forget that, that he literally owns like a weird Wall Street Journal-esque kind of like neocon, neoliberal outlet that gave Eli Lake and Josh Rogan like huge sums of money like to write for them. Like half a million dollars yeah. per year. And that's a whole other weird rabbit hole is Eli Lake is now anti-Russiagate and like basically espousing the sort of anti-Russiagate stuff now. Very odd. I don't even know what to think about that. He was on the news saying that like there were like hundreds of thousands of Russian troops about to like invade Ukraine. He was the guy that was, that was his scoop or story or whatever. He even made it sound like there was all these Spetsnaz, which were Russian secret police, like already all over Ukraine. It's like an, you can't disprove a negative, right? It's like they're spies. They're all hidden. It's like, yeah, they're all over Ukraine already. It's like, okay. And that's, I mean, that's the kind of shit he was pushing and it's fascinating, too, because he was friends with Michael Goldfarb, the guy who runs the outlet that originally funded the Fusion GPS project. So it all sort of all comes back in a weird circle. Um, but that's for another podcast. I have a lot to say you about the, the Fusion Steel GPS. Dossier. The Steel dossier. Yeah. Washington Free Beacon funded the original Fusion GPS project, but the DNC, you know, they took the baton toss and then they hired Chris Steele. But the crazy part is the guy who owns Fusion GPS, Glenn Simpson, is like a Russia-obsessed dude who already had a Trump-Russia theory that was from like three or four years ago. So them hiring him um, 
I think is very interesting. And it's also fascinating to me, and we'll talk about this later, is that the Republicans during the impeachment trial almost slipped up and talked about it. There were a few times where I noticed they wanted to expand the discussion a little bit and they like reeled it back in to just be like the Dems did this, mm-hmm. you know. But if you just go back to the election, it was obvious the Republicans were trying everything they could do to take away his nomination. This was a nonpartisan attempt to stop Trump from getting elected. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's probably too soon to talk about impeachment now. What else is on here that we should cover? I mean, the fact that the Bellingcat guy, Elliot Higgins, is also saying something similar to Eli Lake. Where yeah. He's saying we've gone too far with yeah. the Russiagate Yeah, buyer's thing. remorse. I mean, is it buyer's remorse or is it rebranding? Which one Good is question. it? Because if it was buyer's remorse or remorse or regret, Bellingcat would be like, and I have to acknowledge I played a role that I now regret. The way people used my work, the way people, whatever. But instead, he's just acting like he's above it all. And so is Masha Gessen. She did the same thing. She's like, you know, I'm, I'm a Russian. I, I know all this stuff. But, and she's also acting like it's gone too far. It's like, well, what the fuck? Did you th- where did you think it was going to go? So I really think it's all just lies. I think they're rebranding because they don't want to be associated with it now that it spiraled so out of control, maybe. And then what's interesting, too, is Bill Browder. There's a whole weird rabbit hole, too, with Fusion GPS, is Glenn Simpson, one of his other clients, was someone trying to get the Magnitsky Act removed in the United States to get it repealed. So simultaneously, you have Fusion GPS trying to dig up dirt on Trump-Russia connections while also trying to repeal the Magnitsky Act. They had a Russian client that was trying to do that. So Bill Browder hates... Uh, Glenn Simpson and Fusion GPS, because they were working against his pet project, Bill Browder's pet project of trying to prop up this fake story about Sergei Magnitsky being a political prisoner who was assassinated. But funny thing happened is that Bill Browder actually is suing Der Spiegel right now, one of the biggest newspapers in Germany, and filed an official complaint with the German government because Der Spiegel, after 10 years finally said something mildly critical about Bill Browder's narrative about what happened to Sergei Magnitsky. What did they say? Do you know? I don't know the exact details of it, but by our, by any measurement, it was not that critical. Yeah. It wasn't, I mean, nothing even close to the Magnitsky Act film that we watched. I mean, it was like maybe like one-tenth as sort of revealing as that was. And he's he blew a gasket, made like an expensive video talking about how it's disinformation, it's Kremlin disinformation, Der Spiegel's been compromised by the Kremlin, blah, blah, blah. But he's very litigious. I mean, in case anybody doesn't remember this, he also got the Magnitsky Act film removed from Vimeo. I mean, it's really weird. It's like when you actually follow the threads of Russiagate and actually try to pull them all apart, it really becomes this weird hall of mirrors really quickly. That's why I'm surprised that people are so able, easily able to be like, this is what's happening. Here's my breakdown of the Horowitz report. You know, these are the players. It's like, there's so much more complicated aspects to it that, I mean, I think it would literally take a team of journalists, like five years, fully paid salaries to actually map out what happened with Russiagate. Like, that's how much of a weird web it is. One person, few people doing it on Twitter or doing it on, you know, different outlets and indie media. It's like the tip of the iceberg. Right. And most of that stuff, unfortunately, sort of gravitates towards the GOP framing of it too, which is a bummer. 
because there's so much more nuance to it that I wish was really explored, and I don't think anyone's really exploring it right now. Got to make a very heavy agenda four. Yeah, I mean the thing. If I make a very heavy agenda four right now, I would piss off a lot of people because I'm like ready to knock down like every narrative that's out there <laughs> and be like, "This is bullshit. This is bullshit." Yeah, RussiaGate's bullshit, but so a lot of the people debunking RussiaGate are bullshit. You know, like I, it'll be like a takedown of like everything. Well, you're already on a target, so <laughs> you know. Yep. Yeah. Why not, dude? Speaking of being on the target, Jank Uger, who of course he's not perfect. No one is. I'm not perfect. None of these people are, right? Um, and yeah, he has pushed some RussiaGate narratives. He's also a great progressive fighter and ally who gives time to a lot of important issues and progressives. Um, like he gave time to Gaza Fights for Freedom, which I really appreciate. So anyway, I, I do like Jenk a lot. And what I find just absurd is when you see the corporate media really revealing their hand, you know, like um, the fact that Jenk Uger's kind of innocuously goes by the radar when he's doing the Young Turks, even though he has a massive influence. Mm-hmm. But the second he jumps in the congressional race in L.A., it's like the fucking knives are out yeah, dude, dude. for him. And all the interviews he does, like just focus, you know, these headlines come out that are just focusing on the quote-unquote misogynist comments he made over a decade ago when he was trying to be funny in kind of awkward segments for TYT. It's absurd. It's completely absurd. You're, I think you're, conf- so you're conflating the, yeah, he did those awkward segments for TYT yeah. and he also wrote those blog posts that he deleted himself. That's the point he keeps oh, making. Oh, right, right. It wasn't like, you know, he was he's already he was already like I was embarrassed of those like three years after I wrote them, right, so I right. deleted them. Yeah, and so there's like two things that they're using against him that are both trying to paint him as a misogynist, mm-hmm. but they're not going after any of his actual policies or what he believes in. It's like a total smear job, um, and it's fascinating that someone, even you know, who's not nearly radical enough for me, like Chank, is being de- like. They're attempting to destroy him and ruin him in the media as soon as he stepped his foot in that congressional race. And that's kind of fascinating. And that also just implies that anyone who goes even remotely against the status quo or doesn't push the line will also get destroyed. But that also, the flip side of that is that doesn't mean that the people who the establishment's trying to ruin are true radicals either. They're like so intolerant of anybody who's even steps out of line that right. they will try to destroy you. Like even if you just step out a little tiny bit, like dip your little toe out and be like, I'm going to try. Oh shit. I can't do that. Fuck. They're going to, I mean, so that's, I think that's the thing people mistake is just because the establishment media is like descending and running like heavy smears against certain people does not mean that those people are necessarily radical. It just means that they've stepped outside the box to a a little, you know, a little bit or a lot. Like it could be, it's a huge spectrum. Right. Uh, But it's crazy to see that they would go that hard against Chank. He used to be on MSNBC. I know. Like, you would think it on, there would be some solidarity. Like, hey, dude, like, you got a little too crazy for us, but, you know, welcome back to the fold kind of thing. Like, but Chris Cuomo on CNN, the whole entire interview was like an adversarial at- smear job attempt, and Chank su- handled it surprisingly well. Like, I, you know, I got to give him credit for that. He kept his composure it was so sad to see, and it was sad to see... You watched the Chris Cuomo interview? Yeah, it was horrible. Um, but no, L- LA Times has covered, like, union struggles fairly, a lot of, like, labor issues in California that I thought 
would give a more fair shake to someone like Jane Uger. I was totally wrong. I mean, here's here's one headline after Bernie Sanders, that whole embarrassing 48 hours where Bernie Sanders offered his endorsement as yeah. well as Ro Khanna and some other progressive politicians and then recanted it, retracted it after Jenk made it seem like I asked them to yeah. because the smears were coming out in full force. Anyway, LA Times headline, Bernie Sanders retracts endorsement of Californian who defends crude sex ratings of women. That is the headline describing Jenk Uger. And they're basically, and they're talking <laughs> about like a hot or not segment they did when like the hot or not thing was like completely societally acceptable. I mean, you have to understand how long TYT has been on the air. You know, I'm not going to give anybody any ideas, but if you go back to some of our older podcasts, we're probably saying shit that might sound off color now. It's. I mean, so... we've been doing this for 10 years, dude. Who it, knows? Oh my God! You, I was just telling Mom this the other day. I watched um, Hangover, paging Doctor F word, um, and uh, you know homophobic slurs like, and that was in the trailer. And also, the Chinese character was like the most racist caricature, yeah, ever. So anyway, the fact that this is what they summarized Jank Uger in one sentence, I feel like a profile of Mike Cernovich would be more flattering than this. Or would Richard they call Spencer. Mike Cernovich a rapist who deployed Pizzagate? You know what I mean? No, I mean, yeah, the fact think... that they like summarize a decade plus of progressive organizing and media work, you know, co-founding Justice Democrats, helping push progressive politicians, getting money out of politics, the wolf, wolf pack, truncating it to Bernie Sanders retracts endorsement of a Californian who defends crude sex ratings of women. That's so funny. That is so funny. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think you got to show a little solidarity there because... It's a clear 100% smear attack. Talk the, about the New York Times thing, what they did about the David Duke thing. In the New York Times article, where they tried to smear Chank uh, for running. I mean, basically, this is him. This only started when he ran. And just a yeah. little backstory this already happened with the Justice Democrats that mm -hmm. Kyle and Chank both helped launch, I think like two, three years ago. These came out, these same smears or old blog posts or whatever came out, and it was so, I guess, upsetting within the Justice Democrats that both Kyle and Chank stepped down from it. Mm -hmm. So this already happened two years ago. So now when he's entered the congressional race, it's like the exact same things are being resurrected. The exact same stuff, posts. So the New York Times did even went even further than that. They quoted... Chank interviewing David Duke, and if you watch the interview, it's clear that Chank, you know, is not subscribing to any of his views. It's a very <laughs> adversarial interview, just like you would expect any other progressive, you know, or even mainstream media outlet to do if they interview David Duke. Except Chank has this sort of sarcastic way about him. So at the end of the interview, David Duke says, "I'm not a racist," and Chank says, "Of course not. Of course you're not." <laughs> Which, if you've ever listened to Tyt, that's like a trademark Chank Uger. Of course, of course, no, of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah, it's like so for them to quote that and make it seem like he lit he wasn't sarcastic <laughs> is beyond a smear. It's like a manipulative, evil, weaponized attack. Like if I were him, I would try to figure out a way to sue the New York right, Times absolutely. because that is nuts. Whoever did that was like, I, I'm just, I just want to ruin this guy. Right. Which is crazy to think that the New York Times would run with that. I mean, I know that the New York Times already lied about weapons of mass destruction <laughs> and NSA surveillance and did t horrible, awful things forever. But I don't, that even surprises me to see them 
running with that. Because the thing is, the author deliberately, like... Exactly. And anyone could immediately go and look at the video and be like, wow, she is deliberately manipulating her readers. This is so taken out of context. I don't know how difficult this race is. He's running against so many goddamn people, you know, including Papadopoulos, which I find fascinating. So I don't know what is going to happen there. It's a purple district. Uh, the woman who was outed for the nudes in Congress was the former congressional seat mm. in the office. It's already marred with controversy. You know what I mean? It's yeah. a mess. It's a mess. And um, I think the smears really tell you all you need to know is that he's really pissing off someone. It's it's going to be interesting. And speaking of Mike Cernovich, he was like taunting that he would run as well in the same congressional race. He oh continues to hint that he might jump in too. Oh I didn't even know God. he lived there. Speaking That's of Cernovich. It's fucking nuts that he like lives that close to me. He uh, he's suffering from some kind of skin condition. There was all these pictures going around the Twitter sphere of like him with like psoriasis all over his face. Um, I don't know what's happening to him. It was just for the sake of his like child and wife. I hope he does. Something. I hope he goes to the doctor. It looked pretty serious. I don't know why he's posting it online. Um, so that, I guess that just shows what type of weird person personality he has. Like if I had a terrible skin condition, the last thing I would do is post pictures online. He's such an extreme narcissist. Yeah. Something is deeply wrong with him. His face looks like a Vic Berger cartoon <laughs> rendition of someone that is normal. You know what I mean? Like putting his eyes really close together. He's just the most... Yeah, I don't, I don't even know what he's up to these days, actually. I did see something interesting from him where... You know how like far the left or liberalism has gone to these people? They're like all talking about like family values all the time. So he's like, Islam? Da-da-da. Check. Da-da-da. Like check. Like saying like all these issues about Islam that actually align with like a, <laughs> a sort of moral, a sort of uh, Judeo-Christian worldview that Republicans like idealize. Right. And I, and I was But then like, he was like, liberals fail <laughs> leftists and liberals godless <laughs> but he was sort of like it was interesting because i th i don't even i don't even see it as a troll i feel like um there actually is a weird sect of the alt-right who's like embracing that there's a whole horseshoe effect with that too because there are there is was actually a movement called traditionalism with a with a capital t that inspired partly inspired nazi germany where the founder of the movement actually converted to islam like towards the end wow. of his life. And it was all about sort of worshiping this like regal caste system, the idea of like kingly uh, religions. Like they're really also into Tibetan Buddhism because like this sort of like royalty hierarchy and stuff and the, and the costumes and the, and the misogyny and all that kind of stuff. So there is sort of a weird horseshoe effect, but I don't know if that's actually going to shape out to be anything. That'd be really fascinating if Richard Spencer... And the alt-right actually like converted to Islam, like some sort of like white supremacist version of Islam. Right. Really bizarre. Wow. That is super bizarre. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of the alt-right and Trump just kind of being their ringleader, this executive order that Trump passed is nuts. He signed an executive order essentially banning BDS or what he calls anti-Semitism on college campuses. Really, really disturbing executive order that has wide-reaching implications. According to Liberation News by Saul Kanowitz, Trump's anti-Semitism executive order fights anti-Zionism, not anti-Semitism. Trump administration issued an anti-Semitism executive order defining Judaism as more than a religion. The order effectively confers upon Jewish people beyond a shared religious belief 
nationhood, and thus protection under the Civil Rights Act. The order also expands the definition of anti-Semitism to include anti-Zionist activity. Of course, the executive order has very little to do with combating the rise in violence against Jewish people in the U.S. and more to do with suppressing the growing movement of solidarity with the Palestinian people for national liberation and ending genocidal policies of the Zionist state of Israel. The Arab-American Institute, Omar Badr, put out a thread talking about how the executive order is a politically motivated effort to suppress criticism of Israel by conflating, basically, criticism with anti-Semitism. And it does so by adopting an expanded definition of anti-Semitism that straight up violates the First Amendment. The figure that was central to pushing this effort, this is a guy named Ken Marcus. He was waging war against the Department of Education's Civil Rights Division for years, like trying to get this definition expanded. And Trump appointed him to the head of the department. This is (laughs) another insane thing that Trump did, completely pandering and catering to Zionists way more so than any president has, um, taking it so much further. Marcus openly admitted to his political motivations when in this whole like attempt to expand this definition of anti-Semitism just to attack Israel's critics. He said this to the Jerusalem Post, we are creating a very strong disincentive for outrageous behavior by students in particular, Israel haters, now publicly complain that these cases make it harder for them to recruit new adherents. Needless to say, getting caught up in a civil rights complaint is not a good way to build a resume or impress a future employer. So kind of chiding like, yep, students are going to have a tough time navigating around this if they want to get a job. So they better be careful with their BDS efforts on campus. Very disturbing as someone who just did a nationwide tour for Gaza Fights for Freedom. Everything was great until the attempts to show this film on college campuses. The entrenched Zionist pro-Israel lobbying efforts that are still like uh-huh. deployed on these campuses are so strong and so powerful. And it has been very destructive. And a lot of the times they nearly shut down the movie. Like people either were too scared to go forward with it. There was a lot of retractions of endorsements from um, departments and teachers who were sympathetic with the cause that after, you know, smear campaigns were put out by these groups, like really scared them and they didn't want to be associated with anymore. It's really, really disturbing. So the fact that this is now on turbocharge from the Trump administration um, sets a really bad way. I don't know where it's going to go, but it's definitely not going to go anywhere good. (laughs) If you look at Trump's campaign trajectory, things really turned around for him when he got that Sheldon Adelson endorsement. And when he spoke at APAC, that was almost like the moment when the Republicans sort of lowered their shields and accepted him in. And there's probably a lot of other things that went along with that around that time. But that was a really pivotal moment in his campaign. Um, there, I mean, the amount of influence even just Sheldon Adelson has over Trump is insane, extremely disproportionate. And... It's also funny, too, how right now Turning Point USA is overtly trying to distance themselves from anti-Semitism, like pointing out actual alt-right people like in the audience and baiting them. Like Charlie Kirk, there's a video where he's like saying identity Europa or whatever it's called, that white supremacist movement was like not welcome. And he like specifically pointed them out and like make this big show about it at one of their rallies. And I feel like 
this is all sort of going along with that. You know that all their messaging is sort of all lockstep and, you know, they're getting orders from their donors. There's definitely something happening. It's like a Hail Mary play. I guess maybe they think Trump's going to get impeached. So like, let's just get him to sign this BDS executive order now. I mean, I'm not giving Trump any credit here. I just don't think he's, he has no vision. He's not actually concerned about Israel legitimately. You know, even though Jared Kushner and Ivanka probably are on some level, I don't think he really gives a shit really either way. He's basically just carrying out kind of someone else's agenda with this, I think. I don't know. What do you think about that? Absolutely. Sheldon Adelson was the biggest benefactor um, and controller of the entire Republican Party beyond Trump's campaign. He essentially bankrolled the entire Republican Party. So, yeah, I would say it definitely is sensical to envision that he is carrying out Sheldon Adelson's entire agenda at this point. Hysterically enough, though, you know, I don't need to go over the long laundry list of Trump being sympathetic himself to neo-Nazis and not actually giving a shit about actual anti-Semitic attacks and actual growing anti-Semitism in this country and Europe, you know, and, and basically everywhere. Um, but it is funny that prior to being elected... Trump even said to a room full of Jewish people that they buy off politicians. This is according to Vanity Fair. So not only that, I think recently at a Turning Point USA event, he also said something like, you guys are terrible people, like to a room full of Jews. And it was like, um, and you need the money and like, you're never going to accept the wealth tax. Like, that's why you need to vote for me or something like that. Like, like just constantly saying like, like problematic things to Jewish people and Jewish audiences. He also tweeted an image of Hillary Clinton's face atop a pile of cash next to a star of David and the phrase most corrupt candidate ever and released an ad featuring faces of powerful Jewish people with a voiceover about them being part of a global power structure that has robbed and stripped our country of its wealth. So that one's more like ambiguous, but yeah, I mean the fact that he didn't, he also tweet like a Jewish star, and said that he thought it was the sheriff star. Well, that's the thing. I, I say I don't know if I agree with that because I remember when that happened, and I think that the media was getting overzealous at that point, and they were trying to launch, saying that he wasn't just baiting white nationalists; he was also dog whistling to anti-Semitic groups specifically. Mm. And I didn't. I was not convinced by that sheriff star thing. Well, what was it? I don't even remember what it that was. It was just an ad with Hillary Clinton with like a star image Oh, that's on it. what it's talking about. Yeah, and oh, I, I do okay. not, I did not agree with that, that spin at the time. So I'm sort Maybe of torn not. on the George Soros thing too because I feel like there's definitely people disingenuously trying to use the idea that anyone talking about him is an anti-Semite to shield him. Yeah, there are definitely people out there who have, you know, like anti-Semite white nationalists have run with that, but at the same time, like he is a piece of shit. And he should be called out. Definitely people who make it all about George Soros are dumb. But it's it's kind of weird to me how that's like, why are we talking so much about George Soros? And st- if there's really a problem with anti-Semitism, let's just talk about sort of real world examples that real like actual people can relate to. Like he's an oligarch. Why, why talk about him so much and give him so much protection about this sort of anti-Semitic conspiracy thing? Yeah, I think what's much more damning is that Trump has literally given cover to like neo Nazis. You know, yeah. like that people who actually crazy. Yeah, who hate black and brown people the most. I mean, that yeah. I think that's really what Trump is. It's more base level. Not to say that it's not base level to hate Jews in this country, <laughs> but I do think that people who tend to just hate Jews 
are like more plugged into some like weird milieu of like specific neo-Nazi propaganda, whereas people who hate blacks and Latinos and brown people are just casual, you know, regular racist people like all over the country and who, who go from being just regular casual racist to actual sort of like espousing their own version of like white nationalism. Mm-hmm. So it is, I do think there's definitely, there is crossover obviously with like KKK militia, you know, neo-Nazi militias and stuff. But I mean, I think for the most part, the main 95% of the actual racist dog whistling Trump is doing is against black and brown people. It is curious that under Trump, there has been a, a definitely an uptick in anti-Semitic attacks too. like all these synagogues getting attacked. I, I don't know the trend compared to what it was prior to Trump's administration, but I definitely know that there has been an, an increase in that, which is sure. interesting because it seems like well, there's a it just seems like everyone's emboldened who's terrible. I, yeah, I agree for sure. I mean, and then there was also that weird incident where there was all those bomb threats being called in. Remember right after Trump got in office, uh, two different Jewish centers and synagogues, and it was discovered that it was actually an Israeli guy doing oh it from God, Israel. Oh my God, I totally forgot about that. Remember Wait, that? from Israel? Yes. Was like calling I think U.S. So, synagogues? Yeah. yeah. I mean, Holy I could be wrong shit. about if he was located in Israel, but he was Israeli and he was doing it as like a, a hoax. You know, right, right. I mean, I mean, yeah, but not. Just, I mean, like there was an actual mass shooting at a synagogue. You know, um, there's there's all these real things. Yeah, I think more bizarre is that Trump is actually able to get away with talking about Jewish people in such a crude, politically <laughs> incorrect way. Right. And like his big, you know, like uh, donors like Sheldon Adelson, like don't bat an eyelash. It's like, what can they do about it? You right. Know? Yeah. Maybe they don't even, maybe maybe they're just like horrified, but what can they say? As long as do? he's doing stuff for Israel, yeah. they don't care. The Tree of Life synagogue was, not only was it just a completely devastating and horrifying tragedy, but there was a subtext that people missed a lot that we talked about when it happened, which was that it was like an undercurrent of Islamophobic tendencies, because even though people like Barry Weiss and other people were accusing Elon Omar of like participating in this culture, renewed culture of anti-Semitic sentiment. Yeah. There, it, it really was in part fostered, not from Trump's anti-Semitism per se, but like definitely his Islamophobia and anti-immigrant rhetoric, because it was like, yeah. a, they were like leftist Jews who were helping, I guess, migrants, right? Wasn't mm-hmm. there efforts in the tree of life that were helping migrants and um, immigration issues. So there was a lot going on there that also points to Trump and his rhetoric exacerbating sure. that. But Sure, yeah. I mean, Trump, like, it's hard to quantify exactly what damage Trump mm-hmm. has done to, like, people's feelings and the way that they discuss race or think of race. I mean, obviously he's had some really profound negative effect, but he's had and so much of a strong effect on just other things in general, like the way politics are discussed, right. the way politic politicians behave. Like, yeah, I mean, he's something about his energy and everything about him, like has had a definitely an effect on all these different things. And so to ignore or say that it's totally just mainstream media, you know, lies or whatever to say that he's had an effect on like people being more racist. I think that's you're just ignoring reality. I mean, even Obama being off in office made people more racist, oh, openly racist. Like Absolutely. that's, that's was clear to me too. And I, and I was very anti Obama as an office and, the, and I, I can acknowledge that even though I really disliked the guy, I can acknowledge that there was a bizarre brazenness, even among like casual racist people in the Bay area who would talk about him. 
it's like, dude, like that's pretty racist. Like, it just seems really racist to think that way, or to be so fixated on this or that about him. Just the idea that Obama's responsible for, oh yeah, that Obama's responsible for the racism, more racism. What? Yeah, or more racial disharmony, not racism. Oh my god! But it's Obama it was creating the divisiveness, and Republicans tried to blame him for it because he said that Trayvon Martin could have been my son or something like that. <laughs> Like that flipped them over the edge where they were like, oh my God, he is like trying to like divide the, you know, create like a race war and shit. Like that's how they spun it. And it's like Obama was so milquetoast on race to a degree that's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, Black Lives Matter started under him, which was great. Yeah. He was super dismissive about that. I mean, that's probably the most he said. About anything, any of the police. Trayvon Martin. Like... The Trayvon Martin incident was, I think, the most he said. And he tried to do that thing at the very beginning of his administration where he had the beer summit with that guy who, a uh, college professor who was trying to get into his house. He had locked himself out and the police came and like threw him to the ground. Mm-mm, you remember, remember that? that? And Obama's like, I'm going to have you guys both come to the White House and we're going to have a beer together and discuss what happened. Like the cop and the professor. Oh, God. Yeah. But, like, Republicans freaked out over that. And they were like, oh, my God. He's like, you know. <laughs> so Obama, I think, re- like, realized at that moment that he can't do anything black related. Right. Like, in fact, he has to actually talk down to black people <laughs> and be condescending <laughs> to people about pulling their pants up. Or, you know, even after he leaves office, he's talking yeah. about how it doesn't show ma- your masculinity or something about, like, watching a bunch of girls, like, twerking or something like Saying that like rap, hip hop culture, like girls twerking is like really immature and all this shit. Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) But Robbie, why do you have a hard on for Mike Pence? Why do you have TDS? Why do you have Trump derangement syndrome? Why? TDS, the dick suck. TDS. The dick suck. (laughs) Why do you have TDS? We're we're inflicted with TDS. Yeah. TDS has infected us. Mm-hmm. We need help. We need. We really need medication. Stat, please. For the rest of this podcast, we are going to be resurrecting Charles Krauthammer's neocon corpse, and we're going to be puppeteering him to modify his coin term Bush derangement syndrome to describe the disgusting mental illness that everybody has who, for some reason, doesn't like Trump, who are all suffering from Trump derangement syndrome. And it's... It's really disgusting. <laughs> I mean, these liberals are just gone nuts. But yeah, no, it's really bizarre to me that so many people on the left, who you know, I don't know if they're cosplaying left or if they're actually left, but they constantly say Trump derangement syndrome to like describe their resistance. And it's like, I kind of think you shouldn't be using a term that was coined by a guy who was trying to deflect all criticisms of the Iraq War. I mean, tr- saying Bush derangement syndrome is basically saying that anyone who criticizes the Iraq War is insane. I mean, that was what it was code for. Let's take it back to today is that anyone who criticizes Trump is insane. Yeah. I mean, that's what it's, that's what they're saying. Or you're just obsessed. It's almost more like, it's, it's slightly different color now because it's almost more like you're just like obsessed with hating him or something. I miss when it was cool to hate the president. Like it was fun. It was fun to hate Bush and have him be the center of all of our ire. And now it's like, if you hate Trump... Because he's like a right-wing fascist yeah. psychopath. You have TDS, dude. You're infected. Yeah. 
I mean, what happened to to me? It seems really cool to chew gum and hate everybody at the same time, right? <laughs> like, why can't you just <laughs> be like, oh, yeah, the establishment resistance is totally crazy, and it's it's actually really dangerous that there's all these intelligence officials pushing this narrative and getting on TV and then running for office and then leaking shit, and then also the president's a fucking dangerous psychotic person who's like boring, reckless, who doesn't have any clue of what he's doing. Why can't you? just see that all of it's really bad and dangerous. Yeah. It's so weird how it's become this binary where you, it's it, even the people on the left who do this are like, they are sort of choosing this false binary choice of being like, well, Trump is better than the establishment on some level. They are sort of going in that direction, even though they're sort of not, they're not openly saying it, but their coverage and the way they talk about things implies that they actually believe that. Hundred percent, and this, I think it's actually almost denying the scariness of how scary the situation actually is when both sides are really, really dangerous. I mean, this is like a really dangerous situation. So it's almost like putting a silver lining on it to make it seem like Trump is actually somehow some kind of savior or bulwark against this like agenda that's dangerous. So we haven't talked about impeachment in a while. A lot has happened with the impeachment proceedings. It is a complete circus. I was only able to manage to watch one day of the entire proceedings, and it was just a, a totally outrageously like... You couldn't tough it out longer than that? Couldn't tough it out longer than that. It was just like... I got like um, five days in, baby. <laughs> <laughs> It was just like Republican talking point to Democrat talking point to Republican talking point to Democrat talking point. It was just so hilariously partisan, <laughs> which brings us to the next point. No, just kidding. Um, one, one, th one shout out to Yang, actually, going back to the debate to introduce this impeachment section, is that if you remember correctly, when they began the debate, the first question levied to everyone was, why are Americans so divided on impeachment? But Yang, like, really hit it out of the park. He was just like, he was like, the answer is obvious. He's like, Americans are completely divided on, like, basic facts about reality. He's like, depending on, like, the hyper-partisan media that they're watching. And I was just like, damn, that's so true. So it's like, of course we're going to be split on impeachment, mm -hmm. you know, because it's like you're either watching Fox or MSNBC or whatever. One thing I need to say about him, because yeah. I never had a chance to say this just really quickly, mm -hmm. is people... Even some of this orbit we're talking about that we generally talk about on the show, some of those people who are into Yang, not the Yang gang people, but people who are like anti-Russiagate, who are like sort of yeah. anti-war. Don't talk about the, Russiagate with him? No. Well, not just that. That's one thing. So the fact that he pushes Russiagate, they don't go after him for. But you'll see these people pounce on Bernie for going after Russia, you know, for endorsing Russiagate, which is fine. I, I encourage that. I mean, Russia, pushing Russiagate is dumb. But Andrew Yang... Actually, he's really given all this credit by that same crowd of people for being like really good on Silicon Valley and this idea of tech regulation or whatever. But what you just said, that sounds really smart to me also. Like that's what we talk about, how it is like people are just not getting basic facts. It's all just like an information war now. Things have really escalated to a new level. Everything's totally tabloidy. Even indie media is getting like that. That's another thing that I think is you know, a big problem is alternative media is getting more tabloidy mm -hmm. and clickbaity where it used to be more intellectual and sort of nuanced and educational and sometimes really dry, but that's sort of what you want out of like alternative media. But I, I said this would be quick, but Andrew Yang 
actual policies that he states on his website, his, he has a really long detailed policy paper on what to do with these Silicon Valley companies and how to regulate them. And it essentially boils down to the same plans that like neoconservatives are pushing about uh, reading out disinformation, fake news, watchdog groups, giving websites ratings, making sure that foreign actors can't meddle in our elections and on our internet, like all that kind of stuff. And if you look at his actual solutions, they're really bad. And uh, I think people really, for some reason, that's gone under the radar. I mean, they're basically what I just said, regulating the flow of disinformation online. It's like, there's really no way to do that. You can't do that without actually like subverting on some level, like free speech or like the reality tunnel, you know, Mm -hmm. because that's all those things like NewsGuard, this digital forensics lab that helps Facebook root out fake news. I mean, the fact that this is such an accelerated cottage industry now that there's all these like things popping up it's like none of these people actually understand how to truly do that so this is they're they're just ruining the internet now right and that's what andrew yang essentially endorses what i'm saying that's really interesting yeah his website's really heavy yeah i mean he's got some really deep actually compared to some of the other candidates some really detailed policy positions in them you can read some some you know how flawed some of his beliefs actually are including well this isn't flawed this is actually i support this wholeheartedly including ending daylight savings time yeah and he also subscribes to like weird like sort of unorthodox beliefs like that like isn't that from a movie what politician was like <laughs> the, that was his main position wasn't that a movie i don't know but i i want that because it's really depressing every year well, yeah, I mean, especially right now, it's like out here, it's, it gets dark at like 4.30. Yeah. It's like, what the fuck is this shit? Right. <laughs> so to introduce the impeachment discussion, I watched a day of it. I know that you watched multiple more. You tune into a lot of right-wing media, yep. um, which I cannot comprehend how you Love it. can endure that. But I'm going to quote Chris Hedges here, even though I disagree with his ultimate takeaway of the impeachment proceedings. But he says it was a nauseating display. Of moral hypocrisy. Of course it was. Of course it was, <laughs> right? Jank Uger, of course. Very predictable talking points going from Democrat to Republican, Democrat to Republican, where Democrats pretended like they were this um, arbiter of like constitutionality and that they were, you know, the benchmark of morality and trying to uphold some sort of legality that Trump has violated, while the Republicans have eternal fealty to Donald Trump like worshiping him, saying that the entire thing was a legislative coup yeah. and literally just, you know, pledging allegiance to these absurd talking points like Donald Trump really does care about corruption. weeding out corruption in Ukraine. And that one is to me one of the funniest ones, even though it sounds mild. It's think of how funny that is. Yeah. Because they know that they all know that's not true. That's like the mo- that's the biggest lie they're all telling because all the other things there's a kernel of truth in most of them. I will give them credit for that. The Hunter Biden stuff, Joe Biden stuff, even though it's totally irrelevant to the discussion, they're bringing that up during the impeachment hearings, like how Hunter Biden went and bought crack. Like, that's a true story. But it's being brought up by a psychotic QAnon-pushing congressman who literally has like eight DUIs or something. Oh, right. Yeah, I saw and, that guy. So that's so that's really funny. But, but like and that... And whose daddy like yeah. bailed him out of jail also. Yeah, yeah. Like. But the thing about how... 
um, you know, the, the impeachment's trying to overturn the election. Well, technically, yeah, all impeachments overturn the election. So I guess that's a true one. Okay, but it's a dumb way they're using it. But the idea that Trump was actually trying to root up corruption was actually trying to root out corruption in Ukraine, and that's what the conversation was about is hilarious that they are pushing that because they all know that's not true. They all know that it was about Biden. It's just so funny that they keep saying that because they their heart's not in it is basically what I'm saying. There's right. no truth to it. Right, yeah. And especially someone like Trump who's so self-serving and so self-motivated, like the fact that he would even care, actually genuinely care. It's so partisan to the point that Republicans literally only care about their re-election and they only care about protecting the party and their career and they know how scary it would be to actually turn against trump at this point trump is their golden ticket Mm -hmm. the republican party was imploding before trump took over and they just know at this point they have to just have complete subservience and 100 percent loyalty to trump so as ridiculous as their shit sounds i mean it's almost like out of an act of desperation well it's and it's roy cohen-esque too yeah, it's an act of desperation. They have no other choice. Especially when you see someone like Lindsey Graham, who was like totally anti-Trump, right. who said he was like a vile human being. He said so, talked so much shit about him. And to see him tooth and nail, full 100% defensive mode on Donald Trump, even like screaming at people during the Kavanaugh hearings. I mean, that's a really, that is really bizarre to me. I understand loyalty and being part of the team and stuff, but... There is something odd about that. And I'm not even insinuating that the sort of the homophobic, you know, stuff people put out there about him where it's like, well, Trump must have some like secret pictures of him, like fucking some guy or something like I'm not even talking about that. It's just very weird to see how loyal Mm -hmm. that's someone who was basically on McCain's team and wrote resolutions Mm -hmm. together. He Mm -hmm. was a heavy Russiagate pusher. He was involved in pushing the Magnitsky Act. And even the fact that they're all so unconcerned about Ukraine now is also sort of weird too. Like that would have been something the right, you know, it was a bipartisan thing originally. And they all know that too, that it was a completely bipartisan, tons of Republicans and Democrats all voted for that funding too. For all those Republicans to now pretend like they don't care about that getting there, you know, it's strange too. It's like, I thought they all cared about that. I don't really know what to make of it. I mean, it, it's hard to really pick it apart and say, like, this this is what they're motivated by or whatever. I think that the bottom line is, of course, there are a million impeachable offenses. Of course, Bush should have been impeached for lying about WMDs. Of course, Obama should have been impeached. I think a lot of Democrats should be impeached for war crimes, for the Emoluments Clause, for all of these things that are clear violations of the Constitution. If we're going by, like, constitutional law, right? Yeah. That's sure. a no-brainer. Absolutely. Aside from that, there are impeachable offenses that were much more crystallized in terms of Trump specifically, if we're putting aside predecessors. That's obvious as well. Of course, he should have been impeached for emoluments clause on day one. I mean, he should never, he should have never been elected based on the violations that were very clear from that, right? So this yeah. is why you have people like Al Green and Maxine Waters who were leading the drive for impeachment on these offenses. Years ago, actually, early 2017, they were bringing, trying to bring impeachment articles to the House floor in 2017 about like these offenses and also just like the vitriol and racism 
incitement to racism and violence that Trump was yeah. um, employing, which I thought was really interesting. There's also something true to the idea that there's strategy of tension being that Trump is almost deliberately using that. Mm-hmm. Where it's it's an incitement to violence for political purposes. But Robbie, partisan. You're saying Trump created partisanship. You're saying Trump yeah, created. I am. I you got me. I'm a neolib. I can't help it. <laughs> he created. He created it, Abby. No one before him. It is just so funny too. The idea that it's hyper partisan to impeach him over this. I mean, yeah. At this point, I'll take anything, even something this dumb, to impeach him over. But, like, he is literally the most partisan president that I've ever heard of in my lifetime. I mean, maybe there was someone more partisan before him, but, like, in our lifetimes, right? like, the last few generations, like, this is unprecedented level of, like, him, like, stoking the flames of, like, basically not just saying that the neoliberal media is the enemy of the American people, but also saying that, like, Democrats are. And, like, constantly calling Nancy Pelosi a radical leftist and calling her a communist. I mean, it is really weird to think that people would actually have a problem with you pointing that out. Like, that is really crazy, the level of partisanship he's gone. Yeah, when I pointed that out, someone was like, well, Woodrow Wilson did the same thing. It's like, (laughs) I wasn't alive when Woodrow Wilson was president. I'm alive now, and I'm witnessing how Mm -hmm. disgusting Trump is calling all Democrats radical leftists and evil communists that's very disturbing i think the impeachment thing boils down to this like if it were really you know of course they tried to oust um trump on the russia charges right they tried to discredit him as a russian agent for two and a half years they've wasted everyone's time they've siphoned all of the quote-unquote resistance energy away from tangible things that we could have coalesced as the left about the horrific foreign policy that trump is partaking in around the world, all of the war crimes, all of the empire expansion, all of that has been kind of siphoned away into this faux resistance against Russia and like xenophobia against Russia. That is absolutely correct. Clearly, the Mueller report went nowhere. Trying to tar Trump as a Russian agent went nowhere. If they were to somehow find some caveat in the Mueller report to try to impeach him on, I would have been much more outspoken against that by saying this is kind of the ultimate culmination of Russiagate. You all know how we feel about Russiagate. But we just for the record, we feel like it's complete bullshit. Yeah. Just so in case people have just started listening to our podcast, we think Russiagate's bullshit. Yeah. And so this is completely different, though. This is totally different. This is something that Trump actually did that Russiagate was accusing him of doing for two and a half years. He actually did this. Or tried to do it. Objectively speaking, if anyone looks at the phone call with the Ukrainian president and Trump, you can see that there absolutely was a quote unquote quid pro quo, even though that phrase was never elucidated or like spelled out. And 90 minutes later, that aid was withheld. This is totally removed from the fact that I completely disagree with giving Ukraine aid. That is not a necessity to agree that Trump committed an impeachable offense here. I do not agree with giving military aid to Ukraine. Of course not. I disagree with the entire coup. That was a bipartisan effort. That's completely aside the point of what happened here. And also my question is, what else is on the server that they were hiding? My guess is a lot more than just quote unquote Ukraine gate. That's one part of it is like the obstruction of Congress article. That's that's a slam dunk case. Because he literally refused to give up, not just the server, he had to try to right. put things on his oh, server. Yeah, he refused to do anything. Give up anything. Right. 
He refused to give up anything. Right. He could have sent in people to testify if he wanted to. So they were playing like a double game where it was just like full Roy Cohn counterpunch mode. Like, don't give in at all. Don't even give in an inch, centimeter. Don't even don't send anybody to testify. But then also say they're excluding you from the process, not letting your people talk. It's like, well, they're literally putting out both talking points. I mean, it, it is really Roy Cohen-y. That's why some of the messaging is so confused. It's like, tr- that is Trump's strategy. It's not to make a coherent, singular narrative that sounds believable. It's to just throw anything at the wall to see what sticks, to counterpunch, 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 defend, 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 don't give in anything, just punch, boom, boom, boom. Like, that's why it seems so messy. But apparently, this is what he thinks is a workable strategy. Like, that's why I think he's somehow, like, he's, he's not really listening to legal advice even. In a, in a consistent way. He's not, if he is, he's like listening to different people at different times and then not like really putting it into a coherent package. I mean, I watch enough of the impeachment hearings to see the differences and all the different things that the Republicans are bringing up. Only a handful of Republicans tried to create an all encapsulated sort of all encompassing narrative that sort of covered all the bases and only like maybe Radcliffe and like a couple other people like really did that. But that's not what got any of the media attention. It's like the reptile brain, low hanging fruit, Republican talking points are the ones that got deployed, you know, through the right wing media, like that Hunter Biden did crack. Okay. <laughs> or that uh, there was Ukrainian meddling in the election. You know, Trump is like so fixated on this idea that the Ukrainians worked with the Democrats in the 2016 election to dig up dirt on Trump. Okay, it did happen. How is that even relevant to the discussion? It's basically saying, well, they did it too. That's the defense. Yeah, right. But it also doesn't make sense because they weren't president of the United States when they did it. Right, right, right. So even if they did, I mean, yeah, they did that. It doesn't matter. The weird part about that, though, is the mainstream media keeps saying that whole thing is a conspiracy theory. This is the weird this is when we get into some weird rabbit holes where the media like gaslights people into saying that it's a conspiracy theory to say it's a corruption it's corruption why Hunter Biden got that job. Yeah, of course. It's like of course. no that's not a conspiracy theory. That's yeah. literally you're literally gaslighting me to my face. Everyone knows I'm just sounding like Trump. Everybody knows it. <laughs> Everyone can tell that something's really sketchy about that. So for the media to be like you're a conspiracy theorist for thinking Joe Biden did something corrupt and did something for his son. It's like, what? And then also the fact that they would be like denying this Politico reporting and other reporting that the DNC did consult with people in the Ukrainian government in mm-hmm. 2016 to dig up dirt on Trump and Russia or whatever. So why is the media saying that's a conspiracy theory? Because there's no nuance anymore. But like that to me is particularly, it's almost like really triggering for me because what it does is it also makes all these people we're talking about, these people who think Trump is anti-establishment or more accelerationist, it makes all them fixate on those things and be like, it's not a conspiracy theory. The Democrats did meddle with the Ukrainians in the 2016 election. Here's 20 tweets and articles about it that I'm going to spend the next three days showing you. It's like, well, okay. But at the same time, it's still really irrelevant to the discussion. Even though the media did trick, I could see how it'd be triggering. The media triggered me into getting upset about why they're calling it a conspiracy theory. But you don't need to spend so much energy trying to prove that it wasn't. It's like there are bigger fish to fry here with impeachment. Rather than one deployed Republican talking point. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I totally get it. I think that it's, there's a lot of different factors that could go into that. I think just the... 
hyperpartisanship of the liberal media, the neoliberal media that that just go against everything Trump says, doesn't want to give any credence to any of his talking points. Then you can look at the staunch defense of Joe Biden, the fact that they're propping him up artificially as um, the hero in the situation. They don't want to give any credence to the fact that it is obvious corruption. So, yeah, there's a lot going on there. And just the fact that, like, all these politicians do similar things, you know, just quid pro quos with, like, political positions and influence campaigns that, like, get their whatever spouses or spawns jobs at these companies and whatnot. I mean, I think that the the biggest irritating talking point to me, I mean, there's a lot of them coming with the impeachment stuff, but the biggest problem is that there's such little nuance about walking and chewing gum at the same time. Of course, there's other things that these people should be impeached for. Of course, Trump has committed worse crimes. This is like a drop in the ocean compared to the crimes Trump has committed. Look at Yemen. Look at uh, the Saudi Arabia stuff. Look at Palestine. Fuck, his support for Israel alone. Um, Look at the environmental degradation. Look at the right-wing judges. Look at the Muslim ban. Kids in cages. All of the shit, to me, means much more than him withholding military aid from Ukraine. However, the majority of these things, there is a bipartisan consensus on. Democrats do agree with Trump on foreign policy 99% of the time. Look at look at all the Democrats who claim to be resistance heroes that just voted for the NDAA, um, the near trillion dollar defense budget. I get that. But I'm going to take what I can get. I think Trump is a super dangerous person. And I actually do think that he is more dangerous than Mike Pence. I think that removing him would be a very good thing for the country. And I know that this isn't going to result in his removal, but I think it's Operation Mindfuck Donald Trump where it's going to make him just more um, unstable. Yeah, meltdown more. Yeah, meltdown people, more. People say he's not has suffering or he's not having a hard time. He's fine. He's doing great. But really think about it just on a personal level. How could he be? This is super stressful. I mean, even just the messaging that's coming out, like you said, it's desperate. It's it's disorganized. The messaging is just counterpunching, counterpunching all the talking points, and it's not coherent. There is a, a vibe of stressfulness. The Republicans aren't enjoying this either. Even when Fox News was just mocking it and being like, what? It didn't make a dent. Like, why are people even, this is, what is this? This is silly. Like, well, it's like on some level, they also have to be concerned and nervous. I mean, this is like, this is actual real impeachment. This is not like a, a just a fake impeachment. But then they're also saying it is a fake impeachment because they're like, they didn't bring the articles to the Senate yet. So that means technically it's not true. Was this all a hoax? Was it all fake? It's like, no, it, you're just a fucking idiot. You're just yeah, fucking I mean, dumb and just just admit it. Just be like, yeah, it happened. I mean, it's just so funny. Yeah, I mean, it is <laughs> it is significant that Donald Trump is only the third president in the country's history to be impeached. You know, Bill Clinton was for something super ridiculous. Of course, he committed several war crimes. I don't know if the same sector of people would be staunchly defending Bill Clinton saying, I do not support this because he should be impeached instead for like the telecom act. You yeah. know what I mean? Like all of these horrific things that he did abroad. Like would those same people be doing that? And that begs the question, would these same people be doing this today if Hillary Clinton was impeached over something like Benghazi. Let's just do a thought experiment and pretend like Hillary Clinton won the election and that there was still this Republican frenzy to try to impeach her over the Benghazi scandal. I have a weird feeling that people would not give a fuck 
because the hatred of Hillary Clinton is so strong. And plus, I fucking hate Hillary Clinton. I think she's a horrible war criminal. I would be like, yeah, this is a stupid reason to impeach her, but I don't care because she's such a terrible yeah. war criminal that I support her getting impeached. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would be, it would have been fun to see that happen. It would have even been interesting and fun to see Obama get impeached right. or something. I mean, even like the Fast and Furious thing. I mean, <laughs> even though that was like a thing that Republicans made, you know, made that they almost like the entire plank of like their Obama hatred for a while. Um, it still was a real thing. It was really bizarre what happened, you know. And I don't think I would have. We would have been like, oh my god, this is helping obama's base too much like why are you doing this this is a horrible yeah. idea because it's gonna help obama it's like who cares it's fun and i hate yeah, all yeah, these yeah, people yeah. that's a that's a really good point because that is sort of dead yeah, that's a, on a really basic level just chewing gum and walking at the same time it's like yeah um you know this might not be the right reason to impeach him but at the same time like what what is it with trump that people still really want to latch some of these or just like ascribe good values to him He's proven himself to be the most disgusting, loathsome human being just on a personality level. I mean, he's stoking some of the most reptile brain, dangerous sort of right-wing xenophobic thought we've like I've ever seen. Like, how is that not more bothersome to people? He has a cult and of I mean people on the left who claim to be anti-imperialist and like anti-war and even will claim to be anti-racist. It's like why are you not more concerned about this? Like, I understand why you're concerned about Cold War 2.0, Russiagate, what the Democrats are do talking about wanting to arm Ukraine. I can understand being upset by that. I am too. I think it's terrifying. But at the same time, I guess I'm somewhat comforted by the fact that the whole anti-Russian fervor in general seems to have died down a little bit. Like, there's a pivot away from that right now. Like, it was at a fever pitch, like, two years ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, before Trump got elected, that was, like, we were, like, I, I thought it was, like, going to get hot. I mean, like, that's what it felt like. There could be, like, a hot war with Russia to a certain point. Like, it really felt serious. And it's not at that level right now. Like, it really isn't. There's not going to ever be a time where impeachment, at least in modern history, maybe Andrew Johnson that wasn't as hyperpartisan. Maybe Nixon wasn't as hyperpartisan. I don't know. I wasn't alive during those times, but I do know, of course, Bill Clinton's impeachment was hyperpartisan. Well, Obviously, it was the like, entire era. Johnson was hyperpartisan, apparently. Okay. But that's according to Jonathan Turley, who said we shouldn't use that as an example. <laughs> but I mean, Trump. I just, I guess my point is that using the notion that impeachment is partisan. And it, that's a reason to not support it, I find odd. Because when will it ever not be partisan? It's like our entire Congress is like totally divided on party lines. Everything is partisan and controversial. Giving kids free college is partisan. Giving, mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like healthcare is partisan. Like yeah. every issue is partisan. Yeah, and then how would you know until you try it? It's like, that's all. it's also sort of like acting like well, we shouldn't do it because it's partisan, but you don't know for sure until the debate sort of shapes out how it's going to play out. Like maybe Republicans would be convinced that the evidence is strong enough. So you don't know really that it's going to be along partisan lines until it's done, until the vote's done, really. Mm -hmm. Right? So why why is that even like a reason not to do it? It's like we don't know how it's going to... But I mean, in this case, it did seem to shape out in a hyper-partisan, along partisan lines... Right. 
so those people, you know, who predicted that it would be were more or less right, but that's still not a reason not to do it. It's just weird circular logic to me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and also, yes, I understand Trump is not going to be removed because the Senate is not going to do a proper investigation. I don't know if that's enough to say is not worth going forward with. Um, because again, this is about accountability for the president on something. This is like literally the bare minimum. Yeah. Of course, the Democrats should have done so much more. They're, they're horrible. They're acquiescent and they voted for the worst shit. And again, they will never impeach him over something serious. No. So I, at this point, my bar is set so low that I'll take what I can get because I do like Operation Mindfuck Donald Trump. I think he's an absolutely abysmal figure who has a cult of personality that is riling up a very, very scary fascistic base that I don't think would exist nearly as much under a Mike Pence presidency. I don't think Mike Pence would have the same sort of draw from like a, a, a Nazi youth. No, he would not be drumming up the same kind of fervor and loyalty in this country. So in that sense, he would be less dangerous. Now, in the in another sense, I I would make the only counter-argument to that, that in another way, he could be more dangerous than Donald Trump. And that way is that he would be more predictable and more acquiescent to some kind of arm of the ruling class. Not saying that Trump resists them, that Trump is like just scatterbrained and just keeps changing his mind on certain things except for like israel there's certain mm-hmm. things where he's like very consistent powering forward you know there's specific things but in general i feel like in terms of carrying out like a specific foreign policy endeavor i feel like mike pence might be better suited for that right so that specifically so like going to war with iran for example i think if mike pence is in there that could happen quicker not because i think trump is anti-war but because Trump has flip-flopped and done weird things on Iran so far. But in terms of the sanctions and the general policy and adversarial position towards it, he's been amping that up. And I think that he's been providing some sort of cover, like you've been saying, that makes people think that he's still bucking some sort of establishment, which makes him dangerous and toxic to coalescing some sort of real resistance among anti-imperialists and anti-establishment activists. That too. And if and I think if Mike, so you're saying if Mike Pence was in office, right, there would be more a more unity. Yeah, be like, okay, now we got to get this yeah, motherfucker yeah, yeah, out yeah, of there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like a Christian evangelical. Right. He's right. like calls his mo- his wife mommy. Yep. Let's get this motherfucker <laughs> out. <laughs> right, but Robbie, I've been called. It's so fascinating. Not only just getting berated by Tulsi Gabbard supporters um, for simply. A, a small critique I made of her just asking rhetorically, why is she running against Bernie? Um, to me, that's a hostile act against the Bernie movement. And it is because you are running against someone in a primary. You are a political opponent. You are not an ally at that point. So anyway, just just simply posing this question and then some problems that I had with her foreign policy has literally made me the target of much ire. For weeks and weeks, anything I say on social media gets um, bombarded with dozens, if not hundreds, of staunch supporters literally calling me a sellout and a neoliberal shill who is trying to vie for a job on TYT and that I'm not an (laughs) anti-imperialist anymore because I simply say things about Bernie now and again, even though I consistently call out Bernie on his horrible foreign policy decisions. You can look at my record on that. It's all laid out. But I think it's really, really toxic. 
It's become very, very toxic um, because simply saying accurate things about Trump now, and let's take Tulsi out of the equation. This is now just about people like AOC and Bernie. If you say anything positive about them, even while acknowledging their faults, you are still a shill, you're a neoliberal, you are not an anti-imperialist. If you say accurate things about Trump, same thing. Yeah. You're a, not an anti-imperialist. Well, you're catering you're, you're you're catering to Nancy Pelosi, you're kissing Nancy Pelosi's yeah, yeah, yeah. ass, you're defending the Dems, you're a neoliberal. Tulsi's campaign uh, press uh, assistant guy from Fremont, California, which is uh, only about 20 miles away from me. He, you know, started basically calling out Kyle Kalinsky, calling out me. Um, liking tweets that are like dissing on you on Twitter. This is an official paid employee of the <laughs> Tulsi campaign. Right. Let that sink in for a second. So that's a little bit weird because we're not loyal to her as a candidate for her campaign to like, even like be involved in like Twitter arguments between mm-hmm. us and her fan. Like that's a little bit strange. I've never experienced that before, ever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, ever, yeah, usually ever, Usually there's ever. a sense of like separation. Ever. Yeah. That is let's just say there's a lack of boundaries there mm-hmm. that's, that's a little strange and then it got weirder when basically kyle kalinsky just said what that he didn't appreciate her she had a, she fetishizes in bipartisanship yeah he made one like pretty mild comment about her that it was maybe like three sentences long or something and this is aside from the fact that 99 percent of all of his videos that mention her are positive exactly that's the key thing kyle is actually fairly positive in my opinion way too even-handed about her and i think that maybe he feels differently inside about her and he's not saying it because he wants to he's a little more big tenny than us let's just say so but that, what he said, was totally true. And Tulsi's campaign guy, again, called him out. Somebody took the clip of it and just made like a Twitter snip, you know, snapshot, one-minute clip video of it. Tulsi's husband on Twitter calls Kyle Kalinske out for this. It was pretty, like, hard. It was, like, so disappointed to see Kyle disrespecting Tulsi like this or something like that. It was like, What? Like, she's running for office, my friends. This is what you're supposed to do to politicians. You're supposed to hold their feet to the fire. This is really disturbing. Like, I'm actually, like, chill. This is, like, just fucking disturbing (laughs) to even just, let like, really let this sink in. So, and Kyle, 90% of the time, says good shit about Tulsi Gabbard. So, of course, when Abby and I have said anything, like, on a show that's negative about Tulsi Gabbard, but more recently, when Abby especially went on Michael Brooks' show and said anything, they just took clips Certain people took clips online. Her campaign people are liking these clips. That and are advocating designed. like a, bo- not the campaign people, but like certain people yeah, advocating a boycott, a boycott of my work. And, boycott and this, my movie, yes. boycott my work, smear me. And, and, and they say that it's just unreal. Well, and this is actually, this leads me to my original point. Yeah. I completely got off track. But Tulsi's, the people who are into her are sort of against the idea of cancel culture. They right. don't like subscribe to like identity politics. In fact, they like act like they're proud of that. And that's why they like Tulsi because she mm-hmm. doesn't either. But it's strange how quickly you get canceled in their eyes or in the, certain people's eyes if you criticize her. Your right. entire body of work is canceled. And then also, even if you, you know, support Bernie in the primary like you do. Yeah, right. 
then they can they're then they're like reverse engineering everything you've said about Tulsi and like oh that's the real reason why right and it's like but no there's actually legitimate things Abby's been bringing up the whole time that you're just like admitting and that I've been bringing up the whole time to make it seem like we don't like Tulsi because we're biased that's that's so just such a disingenuous argument really listen to what we said i mean we've been really consistent in fact we even were saying positive things about her at first of course because we wanted to give her a chance we didn't know we actually really didn't know much about her but like when you really start looking into it and we haven't even gotten to her present vote (laughs) when you start looking into it you're kind of just like she literally was espousing neocon talking points and then all of a sudden she's anti-neocon like she did like a tucker carlson you know, but like within like a three year time period, like, I don't know what's going on here, but something's really weird. And I don't, I just don't trust it. And I, I, you can't change my mind on that. Like there's just too much weird shit coming from her direction. Man. Well, there is something really strange about the amount of vitriol and hatred we have gotten specifically from surrogates. And, and that is true from actual surrogates um, because we do not support her and we don't have undying loyalty for her. And mm-hmm. I have supported her several times. I've spoken yeah. highly of her dozens of times. Yeah. None of these people are should be put up on a golden pedestal. We should be able to fairly criticize all of these people. And yeah. they are fair critiques. These people are running for president. Um, and especially when your brand is anti-imperialism. I mean, absolutely. And I think it's really strange that That's if people too. go against the grain and they are not falling directly in line with this lockstep narrative that... It's no longer Bernie in 2020. Now you have to support Tulsi Gabbard. If you call yourself anti-war or anti-imperialist, and if you do not do that, you are a stooge, you are a shill. That is very strange and very destructive because I am happy that people are awakened about foreign policy. I'm happy that that is your issue. I'm happy that you care about these things. Of course, my entire career has been based on anti-imperialist reporting. But why is it why is it morphed into this weird, destructive mentality? Well, even before you came out and publicly supported Bernie, I mean, like right. a, almost like seven or eight months before, I went on the Nico House program um, to debate him about Tulsi Gabbard and why I don't think she's a strong anti-war candidate because she espouses war on terror framing still. And she espoused it in a very... In, in my mind, very alarming way, only three or four years ago, um, saying that she wasn't sure how she felt about torture, etc. That was that's not that long ago. Her Zionist connections, sharing a stage with Sheldon Adelson and Miriam Adelson, getting an award from Rabbi Shmuley. I mean, when, once I learn all these things, I'm like, there's something just really odd, and I cannot trust the fact that someone would espouse and be that associated with neoconservative paradigms and then only three or four years later be so sort of, you know, playing into this anti-war thing. But then at the same time, it's not just that. It's not just that she's changed so quickly without much of an explanation. It's that her current anti-war beliefs that she espouses are still, in my mind, very reductive. They Some of them play into problematic paradigms. They're not progressive anti-war positions a lot of the time if you really boil them down and she's extremely pro-military and i don't really understand how much she can be actually anti-war if she's still actively serving in the national guard i really do not understand that she needs to leave the military and put her money where her mouth is 
people are like, no, it gives her more credibility. Well, being a veteran would still give her the same amount of credibility. Right, she doesn't are, need to be actively serving. We stuff. already have generals running foreign policy, and guess what? The empire is as bad as it's ever been. Yeah. If not worse, to have yeah. like a military mindset and having that dictate what we should do, like the right way to wage warfare. That's what I get from that. You're doing yep. it wrong, right? And, and she gets a lot of credit for taking the quote unquote right positions now. But like, for example, even on North Korea, she was fear mongering a lot about North Korean nukes when she was in, in Hawaii. And now she's like, you know, all into the peace talks and all that stuff, which I, I want peace with North Korea too. But I don't think Trump has really necessarily achieved that. I think it really mostly was a PR move on Trump's part. Her campaign people have come after me. But the reason I brought up the Nico House thing is because even back then, like eight months ago, people were saying that I was a Bernie shill. And that that's <laughs> the reason why I did not like her vagueness and sort of promotions of war on terror framing. Because for to them, I guess... She is totally right on the war on terror. We need to uh, keep bombing Wahhabists and Salafists and jihadis or whatever. I don't know where you draw the line with that, but that's that's what they seem to agree with. I mean, I mean, breaking through all of the rhetoric today, and I know it's probably ramped up a lot because of her presidential campaign, obviously, but it's important to go back. And I'm not talking about the domestic issues. I'm not talk talking about her support for you know, demonization of gay people or any of that shit. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm just specifically talking about foreign policy issues because people say that I'm a, you know, a shill who can't call myself an anti-imperialist for saying Bernie actually does have a better record, track record of foreign policy voting. Medea Benjamin wrote a great article for Mint Press News talking about the presidential candidates and talking about kind of the bulk of their entire voting record when it comes to foreign policy, issues of peace and war. I'll just point to one paragraph here. Especially on military spending, he has only voted for three out of the 19 military spending bills since 2013. Sanders voted as requested by Peace Action, which is like a Peace, you know, an anti-war group that votes people based on their voting records 84% of the time from 2011 to 2016, despite some hawkish votes on Iran. Looking at Tulsi Gabbard, according to Medea Benjamin, her voting record, despite the rhetoric, despite the rhetoric about the new Cold War and arms race with Russia and all of that stuff, despite that, her actual voting record on war and peace issues, especially on military spending, is not nearly as dovish as Sanders. She voted for 19 of 29 military spending bills in the, in the last six years and only has a 51% peace action voting record rating. And many of the votes include fully funding controversial new weapon systems, including nuclear-tipped cruise missiles and various parts of Obama's anti-ballistic missile programs. She voted twice to not to repeal the AOMF and voted three times not to limit the use of Pentagon slush funds. She voted against an amendment to cut the military budget by just 1%. Um, and this is, of course, aside from the whole military mindset and, and approach to counterterrorism. Bernie Sanders, on the other hand, you know, even though he supports the withdrawals from Afghanistan and Syria, he still, of course, demonizes leaders that foment these regime change narratives against people like Maduro and Xi Jinping and stuff like that, which is highly problematic. And he also has taken... $366,000 from the quote-unquote defense industry during his 2016 presidential campaign. So it is interesting when you actually just look at the facts. 
aside from this rhetoric that we're hearing today, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, can she back up her rhetoric with her actual voting record? And I don't think she necessarily can. But at the same time, the rhetoric itself, I I really don't think it's particularly strong. I mean, I will say it again and again that for in terms of being anti-war as a brand, her rhetoric is way weaker than even like Dennis Kucinich or Ron Paul. And it's also more centrist and or right wing than Ron Paul when it comes to foreign policy. That's also a strange thing that I think people are missing. Ron Paul is a paleoconservative for the most part. He's like an old school libertarian paleoconservative. So to have someone like that whose foreign policy rhetoric on the war on terror and Iraq sounded more left than Tulsi Gabbard, who's running as like a Democrat progressive, is very odd. I, I, it's hard to really understand how that's acceptable. I mean, that to me is a lowering of the bar. We've lowered the bar of entry of what it means to actually hold that mantle of being anti-war. And even then, with Ron Paul and Kucinich, I remember people a lot more openly having critical discussions of how much both of them were falling short on many issues in regards to war. It was almost like a pissing contest sometimes. It was like, yeah, they both voted for the Patriot Act. Like, they voted for this. Like, why did they fucking vote for that? Like, people really did still try to, like, nitpick them. I, I think it honestly is, it shows you how toxifying just Twitter as a tool has become because there's no nuance. <laughs> and no, I'm serious. Because a lot of this just can be deduced to the fact that there's no nuance takes or explanations that are beyond, like, whatever characters are allowed to explain these things and then people will react with these really childish insulting things that just perpetuate horribly toxic narratives that can never really be resolved and you can never really have a proper conversation as you would be able to do if someone were just in front of you or maybe with the more long form stuff that existed during um, the races that you're talking about. I just wanted to summarize this before we get into the present vote and summarize the impeachment stuff by saying that point is completely aside from the fact that I do not support Bernie Sanders because I think that he's a savior. I do not support Bernie Sanders because I think he's actually going to bring any change from the top. I think that he is the most likely candidate in the race to be moved by mass movements. He's also the only candidate in the race that is an open anti-capitalist. Of course, he's a democratic socialist. Of course, he is not, you know, a, a pure socialist of course not he's he's not nearly going as far as that and he's not nearly as left as corbin however he has said before he is not a capitalist to his bones like elizabeth warren and for someone like me who has gone on a political trajectory where i'm feeling like capitalism is the ultimate driver of endless wars of expansionist empire to protect capital in all of these different arenas i do think that the adoption of the political consciousness, the fact that organizers and socialists that I know today, people who are in the streets organizing against the Bolivia coup, so many young people that I am fighting in the streets alongside with today who literally got inspired and awakened to radical politics because of the Bernie movement, because that was finally an approach, an avenue to say, wait, capitalism is maybe a problem imperialism is a thing our foreign policy is wrong wait maybe we can have a different approach to these issues remember how taboo all of these issues were just two years ago three years ago Healthcare for all my god college for all abolishing debt so all of these things have become palatable and have pushed people to the left in ways that no one else 
has been able to do. He has pushed the Overton window so much in such an extreme way that it has inspired millions, millions of people. So, of course, despite his obvious flaws in the foreign policy realm, there is a mass movement behind him of millions of young people who are rejecting U.S. empire and capitalism for the first time. And those people did not get turned more left because of being ridiculed and humiliated and condescended to. Instead, it's up to us to bridge the divide and bridge the gap and say, wait, if, you know, which I think that Bernie will get screwed over with the nomination again, and we need to provide those radical spaces of organizing to say there is another way. There are spaces outside the electoral arena and outside of the two-party system that we can energize and be a part of, and we don't have to go dormant because Bernie Sanders didn't win, and there's not another candidate like Bernie Sanders. So yeah, I've never felt inspired like this in my entire adult life. We, we are very highly cynical about electoral politics, but I'm inspired by the movement that is supporting him and the movement that is there to potentially change society. Robbie, this climate of hostility and anger and this bizarre kind of divisiveness, I, I just don't want to play into it anymore. I want to be inspired and optimistic about something that's beyond Bernie and something that's beyond the 2020 election. Well, that's good. That's good to be inspired about something. It's a pretty, pretty dark world out there, and especially politics. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely feel like the movement that's behind him is important. Um, I just... I guess I'm on some level surprised that he still has this much energy left in him because even if he becomes president in a, in a fantasy scenario, I feel like, you know, he's, he's not, I don't know if how many years he's got left, I guess what I'm saying, you know, like it's, it has to grow beyond him in some way. Um, and we have to figure out a way to, I guess, keep inspiring people. And it's something to think about for the future of doing this podcast, I think is, you know, we do spend a lot of time talking about how fucked up things are. And, you know, um, there are things to also be optimistic about. But I I definitely am not feeling super optimistic <laughs> about things right now. I wish I was feeling more like you. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, a final word that I have, if you want to give any final no- thoughts about impeachment, I think... Um, the talking point about impeachment only helps Trump's base. And even though there might be polls that show that Trump's base has been emboldened by this, I think that the support for impeachment is now like 54% since it got introduced by the House. But I think the point is, above all, is that Trump's base only got him elected because Democrats weren't energized to vote. Um, And I'm going to point to Michigan Mm -hmm. for an example. We don't talk about this enough. The no votes. The fact that 90,000 people in Michigan in 2016 went to the polls, mostly Democrats, in Detroit, Flint, Pontiac, mostly African-Americans, majority black cities, stood in the freezing cold for hours on end, voted down the line, and left president blank. What do you mean voted down the line? Like voted for every other like state commissioner, state representative, county commissioner, and did not vote for president because they hated the choices that they were given. 90,000 
people. Hillary Clinton lost by, I think, 10,000, maybe a little more votes in Michigan. Wow, I didn't realize that people actually did that. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. So I think that that, when you're looking at, like, who really won the election, who has the potential to bring voters out, I mean, it's the people. That's why pushing centrism, that's why pushing people like Buttigieg, Klobuchar, and Biden are so dangerous because, yeah, especially in Flint, I mean, look at what Obama did, went there, drank the water, how disgusting, posing with Governor Snyder. All these kids have lead poisoning. Of course, you're not going to fucking vote for that system again. It's a fuck you vote to the Democratic candidate. It wasn't like people voted for Trump that were Democrats, like overwhelmingly to be like, I'm. this is an anti-establishment vote. It's that they were like, I cannot vote for a Democrat because I saw what they did to us and they do not care about us. And that's why I think... Um, it's so dangerous to go with these candidates that just kind of rehash the nightmare scenario that we went through in 2016. Like, that's why someone like Bernie, who is an unprecedented figure, a once-in-a-lifetime figure, like a Jeremy Corbyn chance, is our is our last hope, our last gasp. Um, and there's really no one else like him. Any last words on impeachment? I feel like you didn't really give any concluding thoughts about it i mean one of the last thoughts i'll have and it's just a little bit of uh it's something that i've been pretty fixated on lately and i'm definitely going to cover it in a very heavy agenda for but i'll just give you a preview to leave you with of what i think is really being missed in this whole russiagate you know soft coup you know this people call deep state coup against Donald trump this whole narrative what i think is largely getting missed is, and we didn't even talk about the Horowitz report that just came out, this this look back on how Russiagate got, even got started. Like, William Barr tasked um, this guy named Horowitz to do a report and, and look back at how the FBI decided to do, uh, you know, wiretaps on Trump's campaign people and all that stuff. Now, I think what's really getting missed in all this and all you have to do to really just remember that this, that what I'm saying to you is true. I don't really have to like shove any details down your mouth to just prove this basic point is that it wasn't just the Democrats that were furiously trying to get rid of Trump in whatever way they could. It was the Republicans also. The idea that he was going to get the nomination after the primaries, they were, there was a lot of talk about how to do a contested convention, how to make sure Trump still didn't get the nomination. And even that one scene from the circus that I've played, I think, on the show maybe six months ago or maybe over a year ago now, where it's all these top Republican mega donors talking about how they just don't trust Trump and they don't want, they don't know if he's going to like carry out, you know, they just, they just don't like him. Now, we already know that Paul Singer, the second top Republican donor, the, the second biggest guy, I think, besides the Koch brothers, he actually funded, originally funded the Fusion GPS Trump Opposition Research Project that was later passed on to the Democratic Party to fund the Steele dossier. Paul Singer, top Republican mega donor, is the original source that got the ball rolling on Russiagate. And the only reason I think this is really important is because during impeachment, there were a lot of examples of the Republicans sort of going off script and during these hearings saying things like, hey, 
this isn't just about the Steele dossier. This is about many dossiers. Like, this is like a thing bigger than this, you know? There was uh, Glenn Simpson, and they'll mention all these names, but they won't mention names that are Republican or right wing. Like, they won't even mention, like, neocons like Bill Kristol. So they'll only mention, like, people who appear to the public or appear to the audience we're speaking to as these very partisan figures who are obviously part of some, like, Democratic conspiracy to destroy Trump. But Paul Singer was Marco Rubio's biggest backer. That's like, basically, he was, like, puppeting Marco Rubio in the in the 2016 election. And this is the guy who actually who actually hired this company and the company is run by Glenn Simpson. Now all the Republican media outlets, you know, will now try to separate Paul Singer from the idea of the steel dossier getting funded. But what's weird is Glenn Simpson was like this Russia obsessed guy who had all these contacts in Russia. And why would Paul Singer tap this company ran by Glenn Simpson who already had a Trump Russia theory that he had concocted. Why would he hire this guy to dig up dirt on Trump for the election unless there was already a plan to create some kind of narrative about Trump and Russia? So my point is that I think there's been a deliberate concerted effort in the sort of Republican media sphere to separate the idea that Republicans and like some of the biggest Republican figures were actually responsible for the Steele dossier also. I mean, couldn't you just say the same thing about how the neoliberal media is not talking about the honest facts behind the Ukraine thing? It's like, I guess it's not that surprising to me. Why would they talk about neocons being a part of it? Yes, but no one's talking about this, what I'm talking about right now. Like, it's almost just been erased from all sides of the media spectrum completely. It's not just that the Republicans aren't talking about it. It's like no one's mentioning it. It's strange. And then also, an American CIA agent named Robert Baer fed things about Trump and Russia to a journalist named Cody Shear, who's a closely Clinton-connected figure, to spread around to um, members of uh, the U.S. State Department at the end of the Obama administration. And one of those guys named Jonathan Weiner, I know this is getting really complicated, but if you follow <laughs> what I'm saying, everything is true. One of these guys named Jonathan Weiner, former U.S. State Department employee, tapped his friends in the U.S. State Department after he got this memo from Cody Shear called the Shear Memo. He tapped Victoria Newland and tapped John McCain. He even tapped Chris Steele because he knew Christopher Steele. And he said, hey, check out this memo that this journalist put together that has sources from C- American CIA figures about Trump and Russia. So it's just weird to me that this is all about this Democratic deep state coup that involves UK intelligence figures, but it also involves Robert Baer, who was in the CIA, you know, who wrote Syriana. It's just a strange, I feel like the the web and the actual, the box that people are trying to contain this in is like 10 times bigger than it actually is, is basically what I'm saying. And it even gets weirder and more convoluted when you realize that Glenn Simpson's company, Fusion GPS, also represented Russian clients that were trying to get their Magnitsky Act removed. Like, that doesn't even... I can't even understand that. How was he trying to smear somebody for being connected to Russia, like Trump, and hiring Christopher Steele to do that, but then also at the same time representing Russian clients who were trying to get the Magnitsky Act removed in the United States? 
That's such a bizarre thing. And then one of those figures that he was representing was part of the sort of um, attempt to get the Trump administration to accept dirt about Hillary Clinton. Like one of Glenn Simpson's clients who was trying to get the Magnitsky Act removed. It gets really convoluted. And I don't even know if anyone's still following me right now, but um, it's a really fascinating thing. Your whole point, it's not even that impeachment is partisan. Your point is that just like the, the whole deep state narrative to take down Trump is not, is a bipartisan thing. Oh, yeah. The, the, so. Yeah. my So to, to wrap this up, I think that there really is this false narrative that's still being perpetuated even by a lot of people on the left right now that this this whole Russiagate thing, this whole, you know, this this idea that the deep state is trying to unseat Trump is like some kind of Democrat partisan thing. That James Comey, who actually is a lifelong Republican, John Brennan and all these, you know, officials that were trying to meddle and get, you know, fuck with Trump's campaign that they're all part of some partisan deep state cabal. And then it just feeds into that idea, you know, that the deep state are all somehow Democrats or, well, the people in power right now are all sort of right wing. So you're basically saying that all these people who aren't in their official positions anymore are somehow still pulling the strings. But my, my point in general is that the deep, this attempt to unseat Trump and the attempt to sort of, you know, tie him up with this sort of all these Russian, that he was Putin's puppet, that he's a Manchurian candidate, all of that was a bipartisan effort. And the neoconservatives specifically were involved. Paul Singer isn't just the, the second biggest Republican mega donor. He also is the owner of the Washington Free Beacon. It was his idea, but he wanted to use Washington Free Beacon as sort of the shell organization to hire Fusion GPS. Washington Free Beacon is a neoconservative news outlet run by Michael Goldfarb, who is a Georgian, former Georgian lobbyist friend of Eli Lake. This was a bipartisan effort. I guess that's maybe not a big deal to people, but to me it is, because there's definitely sort of a false framing that is dominating not just right-wing media right now, but pretty much all of indie media as well. But right now, it's not even about Russiagate. It's about the impeachment itself. Well, that's... So how, what is your response to that? Well, how so? What do you mean? Well, how does this apply to the fact that this is no longer about Russiagate? It's about Ukraine gate and the Democrats trying to unseat him through impeachment. There's probably definitely some of that feeding into the actual impeachment proceedings. But at the same time, the deep state, you know, let's just, let's just say there's a monolithic deep state. They're all Democrats or whatever. They didn't have the power to frame him for trying to get an investigation of Joe Biden by withholding the Ukrainian aid. They didn't frame him for that. He did that all on his own. It just doesn't really apply to me to this situation. Like, even though there probably are unprecedented insider forces trying to still unseat Trump to some degree. I mean, maybe it factored into this in some way, but he still did it. You know what I mean? Right. So, like, yeah, that whistleblower thing where it's like this whistleblower was like maybe a CIA agent or whatever, like, that was that weirded me out a little bit. I'm like, yeah, this does seem kind of, like, connected to Russiagate. But at the same time, it's like once all this shit comes out, it's like, well, no, he really was trying to do this. He's an irresponsible, fucking boorish, bull-in-a-china-shop idiot. 
I think even Tom Secker said in the last podcast, he's like, maybe he's so dumb. He just didn't even real like he just this is the way he thinks <laughs> things are should work. He doesn't listen to people. Like, he doesn't even listen to like people like his lawyers in the White House are like, no, you can't do that, sir. That's illegal. He's just like, why not? Right. Like he's that. I really do think I, even though he's crazy like a fox and he's gotten he's in he's the president. It takes some intelligence to become president. He's also just like doesn't listen to people who know better than him. It's 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 a weird mixture. And he did this shit. Like he I mean there's I just don't understand why people are so beating around the bush about it. And yeah, it is a ridiculously small tiny thing compared to all these other awful things he's done to impeach him over, but he did it. It's blatant. And I think Joe Joe Biden and Hunter Biden should have probably been investigated for that. And maybe they still should be. But, like, if they do it at this point, it's just going to be, like, a total partisan <laughs> sideshow where they're going to be, like, in, like interrogating Hunter. Can you imagine, like, Matt Gates at a congressional hearing, like, grilling Hunter Biden about crack? <laughs> like, buying crack in Skid Row? I mean, can you imagine how weird that would be? Yeah. That's what they want, though. That's the type of distracting sideshow they want because, at the same time, Trump really doesn't have a coherent defense. That's why on the last day of impeachment hearings, and I watched this in real time, they were trying to add all these amendments to the impeachment articles because Democrats had already decided on the actual articles, and they already won the votes for those articles to be like written into the record. So the Republicans were all trying to add amendments to the articles to like nullify them <laughs> and like make it so that like in legalese, like it would basically like undermine the article itself. So for example, the Republicans were like, uh, we'd like to add something into the record, White House memo. And they like read the time on the memo, like it had literally just been passed to them by the White House. And it was like, uh, the White House uh, was engaged in a full comprehensive effort to eliminate corruption in Ukraine. The, the aid was uh, debated about potentially withholding it if we weren't sure that the corruption was taken care of so that like once we distributed the aid, it would be like utilized effectively. And then it like went on and on and on. And they're like, we like to amend this to the record. Like it's showing that like the Trump administration was trying to fight corruption. The Democrats like were all like, no, you can't add that. The only funny th moments that the Democrats had was like a few of them were like, they literally just brought this. This is the first, somebody's like, this is the first legal defense that the Trump administration has made. And they brought it in as like a Hail Mary pass, like on the last day of the hearings. Like, are you serious? Like, we're, we're not going to put this, uh, amend this impeachment article. <laughs> like, that was how lazy and weird the Trump administration was. They literally like ran it down. Some staffer probably like ran it full speed. You know, this was like the literally the last day of the hearings. It was just the weirdest thing. If that was their talking point the whole time, then why didn't they say that from the very beginning? Trump blatantly said he wanted an investigation of Hunter Biden, like on TV multiple times. Mm -hmm. Like it was, it, so they are, it was just so funny the way that they were trying to like rewrite history and super disorganized feeling. I don't want to give this motherfucker any credit, but I do think that it'll be interesting to leave our listeners with this clip just to add credence to what I was saying earlier is right when Steve Bannon left the Trump administration, this is what he's had to say about the Steele dossier and Russiagate. Now listen to this. Paul Singer. The, the right. Washington Free Beacon. Was it Goldfarb? Right. It was, Goldfarb and that crowd over there, Crystal, Bill, all the, all the Never Trump guys. Okay. Right. Understand something, America. They're the ones that did that dossier. Right, they're the ones who put that dossier together, and it's, uh, stuff is so crude, so crude. A p 
pack of lies. To put a pack of lies about that together on a man that's running for president of the United States and then to hand it off to the Democrats. His name is, is exactly Paul Singer. <laughs> so I just find that interesting that he, Steve Bannon knows all that. And he's chosen to go with the narrative that it's all was it all a Democrat deep state ploy. So they're playing games. And I mean it's obvious why they can't talk about Paul Singer. He's their second biggest donor. He funds all these people. So what are they gonna do? You know? Mm-hmm. So I think the whole thing even the independent media has basically been infected by a limited hangout narrative that basically just keeps this faux Republican unity intact. And I do think on some level it is a house of cards that could collapse any time. I'm not saying that the Senate, people are going to flip and vote on Trump's impeachment from the Republican side. I just mean that in a general sense, it, just, it really is kind of hanging by a thread. Like, it is their golden ticket, like you were saying, but at the same time, like, they have to be really disgusted and confused and conflicted on a, some on certain levels. Because, like, look at what he's, he, he really is. Like, one day he seems to be doing things the right way, and then the other day he's just, like, crazy off-the-wall shit, 30, 40 tweets a day, promoting Fox and Friends constantly, his interviews on TV getting more deranged. He's not helping himself right now. He's actually making it hard. He's making their job harder, let's just say. Ken Starr, just let other people do the work for you. You don't attack a witness in the middle of her testimony. (laughs) Just let other people do the work for you. I mean, that's probably on some level what all of them are thinking. Even the ones that are like most loyal to their probably just like, dude, let us do it for you. You can't. You're really just fucking this up. Yeah. So for people who are like, this helps Trump. I mean, maybe some of the polls reflect some bounce in his support, but, I mean, he's got to be suffering. Look at the way he's acting. He's, like, letting it get to him pissed off. And I think that that's not, that's, I mean, how could you deny that on some level this has to be, like, ruining his holiday, like, his Christmas. Like, <laughs> I mean, his whole family is probably just, and his whole family, too. They're They're not happy with this, you know? Donald Trump Jr.'s swagger seems to be getting, like, kind of dialed down more like by the day like he's not doesn't seem to have that little confident swagger he had when Gilfoyle was hanging on his arm you know mm-hmm. he got like trolled at one of his rallies for not refusing to do a Q&A the audience turned on his own book signing event you know i mean there's there there's definitely some suffering in the trump family and it's fucking fun to watch i don't understand why you wouldn't be into that <laughs> i mean Thanks for listening to Meteor Roots Radio, y'all. Happy holidays. Happy Festivus. Merry Christmas. Scrape them off 2020. Scrape them all off 2020. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please consider supporting us on patreon.com slash Radio. Take care. Have a happy new year. <laughs> <laughs>